Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Action Radio. This is Greg Penglis coming to you from the historic district of downtown Milton on the banks of the beautiful Blackwater River. And now let's get into Action Radio. Oh, do we have uh, nothing planned for today? <laughs> We've absolutely nothing planned. Uh, this is this is crazy. Uh, CJ's off. Um, I've got uh, I've got a WEBY classic interview. Like, let me uh, let me get my title here. Make sure I get that right here. Yeah, Ken Stern. Ken Stern. Uh, I talked to back at WEBY. I was there from uh, March of 2017 um, until Friday the 13th of July uh, 2018. It's kind of interesting. We're coming up with a Friday the 13th next week. So I'm thinking of playing my last uh, last day. Um, I have two hours. Is it two hours or three hours? I don't know. Whatever I've got. I'm not going to play all of it. I'll, I'll figure it out. Anyway, I want to give you a sample of, of my last show on Friday the 13th. It seems like a special day for me. You know, when things happen, normally good things happen on Friday the 13th, but uh, in 2018, I got fired. And, and so, but the, the last guest is a trip. You're not going to believe who I talk to. I'm not going to tell you. This is just going to be fun to, uh, to let, me, let me see how much of that interview I want to play because that's going to be, that's going to be a good time. Anyway. So we have a lot going on. Uh, this is a great time to call in. Anybody wants to call in, uh, 215-383-3832. Uh, this is a great time for our international guests. And there are people that listen in, in some very interesting places. Cuba. Uh, I don't know if Cuba can call in. That I don't want to get you killed. <laughs> you know, but uh, we, we have listeners in Cuba. We have listeners in Belarus. I would love to hear uh, from our folks in Belarus, especially being right on top of Ukraine, because uh, that would give us some, some fabulous news. Uh, different people that we have. South Korea. You know, you can tell us about North Korea. Uh, Japan would be great to hear from. Different places in the world where things are going on. Um, Argentina, where we, uh, we talked about the, one of the candidates for president who's kind of like Trump. Brazil, where you have one of your candidates who was like Trump who got, you know, kicked out in an election fraud, like Trump. You know, so there's some very interesting countries around the world that I'd love to hear from, uh, especially if you speak English because that's kind of like my only language. And so uh, I will try and slow down, you know, and, and try and listen carefully through accents and things. But the, there are some amazing places out there uh, that would be great to hear from. Um, I'd love to hear from Mongolia, but we don't have any listeners there, which is too bad. You know, get to get the Ulaanbaatar report. Um, I have some new friends in Canada uh, on Facebook, which would be great to hear from. Uh, and so I'm trying to get, uh, as the show grows, and I've got some, uh, I'll probably have a big announcement for you next week. Uh, but as the show grows, I want to have reporters in every country, or not necessarily reporters, but at least people to call in and get direct you know, news of what's going on. Um, our, our biggest audience, our largest audience outside the United States is in the UK, as they say, except for Ireland, which is not in the UK because they're not you. They're not united. <laughs> well, whatever it is, they're, they're not united with, with Great Britain. So, so uh, or maybe this, is that considered, the, is the Ireland considered the UK? I don't know. I'm not sure. Anyway, so the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland, <laughs> you know, all part of the same thing. Someone's going to have to explain that to me, how that all works. But uh, over in, in the, the English-speaking, you know, with strong accents, a part of the world, you've got England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. Uh, and then, of course, you have Northern Ireland, which is part of England, and the Republic of Ireland, which is part of Ireland. It, it gets very confusing. Anyway. How did I get into that? <laughs> well, we've got a lot of time to talk. So there's a lot of places we could hear from. And, of course, anybody in the world, like Marco does, you know, get us on live chat. So uh, Belarus especially, type in. You know, we have a correspondent in Belarus. That would be great. Um, uh, or England or, or Australia or, or Iceland. I mean, I want to hear what's going on in Iceland. We've got listeners in Iceland. It's really cool. 
Anyway, so live chat is simple. If, you, if you're actually in a time zone where you can listen live, unless you're in New Zealand where it's like one in the morning right now, <laughs> you know, um, you can you can go to live chat and simply you just type in, you know, get a free account. And, and Marco's all, here all the time. That would be a great way to get uh, other people, especially if you send in websites of news items that we're not getting in the, you know, in the world press or the U.S. press. Um, so feel free to do that, too. So there's a little housekeeping. I actually have some more housekeeping for you. This is, again, I got to, the only thing I have planned today is, is an interview, a pre-recorded interview from back in 2017. It just happens to be fascinating, though, so it's worth doing. Some of these interviews you know, have never been heard since they originally aired uh, on WEBY, which is no longer, um, at least not in the forms in before. Now it's like a sports relay, Fox sports relay repeating thing. So it's uh, the whole point of buying it was to, to make sure it didn't go on uh, and exist any longer, which is kind of a sad reason to buy a station uh, rather than keep it going and making it better, which to me would have been the logical thing to do. Anyway, um, so we've got, you know, just a, a, a ton of those interviews that, again, those are my interviews. And so this is why I don't mind broadcasting them. Um, they are action radio. And then uh, it's, so they, you know, they belong to me <laughs> now. <laughs> anyway, um, so oh, there's Marco. That's good. So, Marco, we need more correspondence. Uh, it's interesting. Netherlands is now our third largest audience. So I don't know who you're talking to, but uh, it's definitely helping. Uh, most, most of our listeners in the United States, overwhelmingly. Um, you know, it's like 85, 86%. Uh, of course, then you have uh, the, the UK, as I just mentioned before Marco got on, has another 5%. So it's like 91, 92% are between England and the United States, and the rest of the world splits the other 8%. So it's not a lot. Uh, and there's about, you know, 30 countries uh, that split us up, South Africa, Namibia, um, Jordan. <laughs> I'm just thinking names that pop into my head, uh, you know, Romania, um, who else is listening? Uh, I think we lost Bosnia Herzegovina recently, but you know stuff happens. We'll, they'll, they'll come back. People come and go. Um, but it, it, I'd love to get people to be able to check in from different countries. That's going to be a, a great goal. Anyway, housekeeping. We've got some amazing guests uh, both tomorrow and next week. So let me let me go over those right now. And so tomorrow we have. Let me scroll down here a little bit. Andy Ross. Now this is a new person to me. Don't know him. Never heard. Don't know much about him. Why doesn't say I never heard of him? But I mean, I, I'm not really sure. Anyway, he's got a little bio here uh, from the folks that uh, help me out with guests. Andy Ross is the founder and CEO of American Rebel, so you know he's going to fit in on the show, right? A leading manufacturer of gun safes and other concealed carry apparel. Now, what's interesting about that is that gun safes, Liberty safes, you know, prided themselves on being American and patriotic, and you know, mom apple pie, God and country and guns you know, gave the, the master codes uh, to the FBI so they could break into people's safes, you know, whether they were on the search warrant or not. <laughs> they didn't care. So Liberty Safe, you know, totally betrayed their customers, betrayed uh, um, due, due process, betrayed uh, any kind of confidence or privacy. They completely just, you know, wimped out to the FBI, uh, who's probably listening to us right now. They usually do, I think. Um, totally wimped out to them and, and gave a master code. So Liberty Safes sucks. Don't buy Liberty Safes. Uh, if, if that's a, if that's his behavior. Now, if the FBI has a legitimate search warrant and they present that to the homeowner and the homeowner says, okay, fine, I'll open my safe to you, uh, that's fine. But the homeowner says, no, I don't want you confiscating my guns and I'm going to get my lawyer. Sit here. That's okay, too. So, you know, those, this is America still uh, for now, you know, So, but, uh, but the FBI, especially the FBI, ever see that video, the FBI shows up at this guy's house and says, well, we want to come in and talk. The guy says, no. <laughs> what do you want to, what, why would I want to talk to you? Well, we, uh, uh, you haven't done anything wrong. And, of course, my immediate response would be, well, how do you know? <laughs> Have you investigated me already? 
Okay, but they say that to disarm, right? You haven't done anything wrong, but you might have neighbors that have done things wrong. You might have people that you know that might be suspicious that we could look into. And, of course, my response would be, nah, everybody I know is good. <laughs> you know, they're all wonderful people. What's your problem? And then I, I look at the FBI guy, and I go, well, should I look into you? Huh? Well, I mean, maybe you're suspicious. You know, here you are knocking on my door, saying you're from the FBI, and saying you want to talk to me, and you know I've done nothing wrong. How, you know, how much do you, what else do you know about me? So maybe I should investigate you. So what's your name? Let me look you up. Let me Google you on, on the computer and then, you know, on my phone here while we're standing outside. And let's talk. You know, so that's how I'd handle it. <laughs> It'd be really funny. Um, but, uh, you know, when the FBI says we just want to talk, no. Because anything you say can and will be used against you. And even, even what you don't say will be used against you because it'll just make stuff up. All right. So Andy, uh, Andy Ross, the rebel, uh, has the gun safes of a concealed carry apparel, in other words, clothing. Uh, Ross is also a country rocker and former TV host. His show, Maximum Archery, ran for 10 years on the Outdoor Channel, Sportsman's Channel, and Pursuit Network. What's the Pursuit Network? Is that for hunters or is that for uh, aviation dogfighters? Because <laughs> you know, all our planes, like the P-51, the P stood for Pursuit. I just find that interesting, too. So let's find out from Marco what, uh, what goes on in the Netherlands in terms of archery. Because we know you all can't have guns. So, Marco, I, I'm sorry I was really busy during the show yesterday because uh, he, he posts all kinds of good gun stuff and it disappears after the show but his point what, what's the biggest handgun and as much as I would have loved to have engaged in that conversation I was kind of busy um, with uh, I, was I talking to Jean yesterday or what was, what was going on uh, I had Bianca on Bianca Von Krieg our progressive reporter and so you might ask yourself why a conservative show would have a progressive reporter well first of all we're not a conservative show this is a multi-political dimensional I'm anti-federalist yeah, I, I make the conservatives look like a bunch of weenies you know, conservatives are nothing compared to where we stand. And the anti-federalists were the ones that opposed the Constitution because it was too strict, because it gave the government too much power. And even though it's one of the best documents of its kind ever written in terms of dividing the power amongst the different departments of government, making them so-called co-equal branches, um, they, they didn't come out that way. You know, so the presidency came out more powerful than the Congress because Congress ceded their authority. The Supreme Court came out the most powerful of all, and they're supposed to be the weakest because there's a ridiculous presumption that because the Supreme Court says it, it becomes law. And that's not true. You know, or the other one is that I heard this ridiculous thing uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings that, uh, that, you know, if you want to overturn a Supreme Court ruling, you need a constitutional amendment. In other words, you have to physically change the Constitution to change how the Supreme Court ruled. Well, that's a bunch of BS. If you want to overrule the Supreme Court, you simply pass a law in Congress saying that, uh, that, that, that the opinion is overturned, <laughs> you know, is overruled, you know, and the Congress is more powerful than the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court has a problem with it, then you just kick, kick them off the bench, <laughs> you know, for bad behavior. So, I mean, Congress has, has power over the Supreme Court. Now, does the Supreme Court have power over Congress? Yes, they do. They can take a law and say, <clears throat> you know, we're suspending that. Uh, that law has, uh, you know, we're, we're going to, uh, you know, uh, put an injunction on that law. Now, can they remove that law? No, they don't have judicial review. They cannot declare a law un both unconstitutional and remove it. They can say that in the context of the case with the parties involved, the, the law, the, the Constitution doesn't allow for um, what the government did. That's absolutely they can do, but they can't, they can't change the Constitution nor interpret it. See, that's the difference. Most people don't get that. All right. So Andy Ross is going to be on. So we've got a Patriot tomorrow. Uh, and I, we actually have some merchandise here. I have some T-shirts that I made a while back. Uh, and as part of our censorship, we haven't been able to get those through. And apparently I'm just one person. <laughs> there's only so much, apparently there's only so much one person can do. So we'll find out more about that. That is going to be tomorrow. Now, Tuesday, we have a really special guest. I've got Naomi Wolf on. 
And I didn't know that well because she's pretty liberal, uh, writes for the New York uh, – I guess she either wrote for the New York Times or was uh, covered by the New York Times. New York Times best-selling author. There we go. Let me read the bio before I screw up and have to make a bunch of corrections. Naomi Wolf, author of Facing the Beast, Courage, Faith, and Resistance in a New Dark Age. Wolf is a co-founder and CEO of DailyClout.io. That's what I.O. means. A successful civic tech company. What's a civic tech company? That's probably my first question. What do you what do? You do? <laughs> anyway, from New York Times bestselling author Naomi Wolf, Facing the Beast is a devastating, detailed account of wrong think. Sounds like Orwell. Deplatforming. Well, I know about that. And an unexpected political, personal, and spiritual transformation that followed during one of the most divisive times in American history. In other words, she's conservative now. <laughs> Big shock. Sorry, Naomi. Happens. It happens to everybody at some point or another, you know. So, but I like to say wrong thing. Anyway, she's on Tuesday. Now, I only have her for half an hour, but maybe I can get her for a little bit longer. And the reason I say I might get her for longer uh, is because I've actually been in touch with her, sort of. She may or may not remember. But I made a lot of commentary on her uh, articles on Substack because we're both on Substack. Um, before she went to be, I think before she went paid, you know, for everything. Sorry, guys, I can't get, you know, 30 subscriptions on Substack. You know, I can't afford all that. Anyway, plus, you know, all the other places that want subscriptions and want paid, you know, you're paying several hundred dollars a month in, in uh, subscriptions. Yeah, it's not working. Besides, most of the articles that are good are reprinted somewhere else for free. So there's a, there's a, there's a way you can kind of get more information. Anyway, um, so I put a bunch of comments on her um, articles regarding our vaccine product liability and big tech censorship bills. So what I'm hoping, this is why I'm having her on, what I'm hoping is that she will uh, again realize that, yes, we've talked, uh, and B, start writing about our bills. And no one's doing that. And so the fact that we've, uh, our vaccine bill is over two and a half years old, that had this been pushed the last couple of years, Congress might have already passed it under duress because Big Pharma would be giving them billions of dollars not to pass it. But there's certainly no reason to think that uh, it wouldn't have passed uh, given enough public pressure. But that is, again, that's given enough public pressure, and the public wouldn't know to do that if they're all being censored, <laughs> like me. So because I'm being censored, I can't get that bill into the public debate, so nobody knows about it whether to say yay or nay. And that's the problem. So anyway, so that's, a, that's a Friday with Andy uh, Ross and Tuesday with Naomi Wolf. All right, so I've also been busy on Facebook and Twitter, and so I... Uh, uh, I posted something yesterday, time to pick a vice president for Trump to run with. Uh, I'm picking General Michael Flynn. And the reason I said that was because my pick, Carrie Lake, has decided to run for the Senate from Arizona. So the only way she would do that is if she already talked to Trump and said, uh, hey, dude, <laughs> you know, I'm running for senator. I don't want to be vice president. And she'll have a lot more fun and be a lot more powerful as senator. And she can be her own person as opposed to serving in the Trump administration. Uh, she would not have to subordinate herself to Trump. As all vice presidents do to the president, president calls the shots, vice president kind of waits, you know, uh, for, for something really horrible to happen. It's, it's kind of sad to say, but that's what they do. But vice presidents can be very active. And so some are. Dick Cheney, uh, some people think, actually was more president than, uh, you know, George W., you know, George the Younger, uh, Bush. And so uh, everybody said, Dick Cheney, Halliburton, oh, he's evil. You know, they went through all these strange consternations. But that was kind of interesting, too. Anyway, so what I'm hoping is that uh, General Michael Flynn, um, who knows everything about the intelligence community, uh, being a victim of it, <laughs> would then come back and basically fire them all. You know, Brennan, Clapper, uh, Comey's already fired, but uh, get rid of their security clearances, kick them out, you know, debrief them. You know, so whether they can keep their briefs on or not, that's another question. Uh, but, uh, yeah, just uh, totally shred them. 
you know, in terms of get their information, uh, get them on the record, uh, and fire them, <laughs> you know. And so whole entire part departments, National Security Council, FBI, CIA, Defense Intelligence Agency. There's like 17 agencies. You know, why do we need 17 intelligence agencies? That, is, that doesn't sound very intelligent to me. Because they're all going to report different stuff. They're all going to have their own information. They're all going to have stuff that – who was it on the news recently that said that uh, they were getting these security briefings, and most of the stuff was public information already anyway, and they had it classified. Oh, you can't tell people about this. Oh, if the public knew. Well, the public's pretty good about taking things. You know, it's like when, when you go to the doctor, do you want them to lie to you or tell you the truth? How do you make a decision? You know, when I had to, to decide whether or not to get heart surgery to repair a valve, I said, look, tell me the truth. Don't sugarcoat it. Just let me know, and I'll make a decision based on, on the information available. He says, well, you have one in five chance of dying in the next five years if we don't operate. I said, that's not good, is it? He says, no, it's not. Huh. And I said, does it get worse after that? He says, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and now that I'm six years uh, coming on, let me see, it was 2016. Uh, this will be the seventh year. So this will be the seventh anniversary. So uh, I had a 20% chance of already being dead for two years <laughs> if I didn't get the surgery. Uh, so I'm glad I got the surgery. <laughs> you know, and Marco's thinking to himself, yeah, you know, it's probably not a bad idea. So, uh, that, so, so in other words, if you make an informed decision, if you get the chance to uh, um, you know, get the, the right information, uh, you can make an informed decision. I just thank God, literally, I mean daily, that uh, I got my surgery before COVID because I had a problem where my, my chest was filling with fluid because of blood thinners. I can't prove it, but that's what I think was the blood thinners. And they would have put me on a ventilator and killed me. So if the heart surgery didn't kill me, the, 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 the swelling of my heart because my valves weren't working properly would have killed me. Then they would have killed me on a ventilator anyway. So I had, I had three chances of dying you know, seven years ago. Uh, thank God, literally, uh, I'm still here. And I've got work. So I think that's, uh, that's why God kind of put me through. And said, we're not done with you yet, Greg. <laughs> You've got work to do. You've got to create action radio. So in fact, I even told the doctors that was really funny. Right before they, they, they put me under, and I was dead for four hours, um, I said, look, um, you probably don't get this every day, but I said, I really want you to do a good job. I said, because I'm going to be a world-famous talk show host. I have work to do. I have a new project called Action Radio, and so please do your best. And like, yeah, we do this every day. Shut up. Relax. Just go to sleep. Okay. <laughs> woke up for our, you know, woke up like, maybe like six hours later with tubes down my throat. Anyway, but here I am. So, so it worked. And I'm really happy, and I'm healthy and exercising and doing all that. So uh, modern medicine can work, uh, but when the government gets involved and they start uh, you know, requiring policies to kill people, it obviously doesn't work. Anyway, so that's my little, little sideline chat. Um, so vice president. So I want General Michael Flynn as vice president. First of all, he'd be a great president. Secondly, the liberals would hate him, everybody as much as they hate Trump. Uh, maybe more, <laughs> you know, so, so Flynn is the perfect person to make the rules go absolutely crazy, apoplectic. I'll talk to Bianca about that. That might be uh, very interesting to see uh, uh, her perspective on that. So the other thing I wrote was uh, 10-4, that was yesterday, 2-20 Eastern, 10-4, 2-20 Eastern, the government will synchronize their surveillance technology. Being an emergency alert, they should blow the sirens on Maui. So as, as everybody knows, the sirens did not blow on Maui during the devastating fires they had because the emergency person didn't want to declare an emergency because they thought that, oh, no, people will think it's a, uh, a tsunami and they'll run inland into the fire. Well, most people who are intelligent enough to see that a fire is already taking place are not going to run into it. So that's a bunch of nonsense. The people that don't know about it might have a chance to get out and get away to someplace like the ocean you know, where, and, and uh, hop in and, and be safe from the fire. But a lot of people died. I think because they didn't blow those sirens. So my question is, and I haven't got an answer yet, did they blow the sirens on Maui yesterday as part of this emergency alert 
but they didn't blow them during the fire. So in other words, they're okay for a drill, for a test. The, do, the government can actually do that, but when they have to use them for real, they can't. <laughs> so that's, you know, I mean, I'm laughing, but I'm not laughing. So we'll see about that. Uh, another one that I wrote, this is a little more, uh, a little more guttural here. The gelding GOP butt wipes complaining about Matt Gates causing chaos are supporting 12 goober presidential candidates who can't win. Now, writing on Facebook is like a haiku. <laughs> you know, you get, you get three syllables, four syllables, three syllables, and that's it. You know, that's how, or is it, I think it's three, is it three, four, and three? Yeah, I think it's three, four, and three. Or is it like five, seven, and five? Whatever, I'll look, I'll look up haiku. Whatever it is, you get a limited amount of words, and you have to say everything in those limited amount of words. So it causes one to be uh, slightly uh, curt in language and, and try to be descriptive, but once in a while there's gaps, in which case you make a comment below and try to explain yourself. So I wrote the gelding GOP. So for those that don't know, a gelding is a castrated horse, okay? The GOP stands for Grand Old Party. Butt wipes, you know what those are. <laughs> I don't have to tell you, All right? So I, said, so I said the GOP, the gelding GOP butt wipes, complaining about Matt Gates causing chaos. And I'll tell you, the most whimpering group of little babies, little weeny babies, got to the news. And this includes Newt Gingrich, which surprised me. Also Mike Huckabee and some other, you know, icon of the Republican establishment. Uh, they're saying, oh, this is terrible what Matt Gates has done. Oh, no, we don't have our speaker. We're not unified. Well, you weren't unified to begin with. There was the deep state Republicans and the rest of us. So there, was no uni- the, the, there was no unified Republican Party. So to say they've broken the unity is to state the obvious. Anyway, so, uh, so and then they complain about Matt Gates causing chaos. Well, let me tell you what chaos is. Chaos is knowing full well that Donald Trump has already won the nomination in 2024, and yet the GOP gelding establishment, deep state, weenie baby butt wipes are, you know, are, are sponsoring 12, you know, morons, you know, 12 weenies, 12, you know, apparatchiks of the deep state to, to fake, you know, running for president. And that would be um, Nikki Haley, you know, Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, who are the other losers? They should call them the losers, not the goobers. So the goober losers. Uh, I don't even know, so, Vivek Obama Swampy, you know, he's another one. And the only one I really like is Doug Burnham, uh, the governor of uh, North Dakota. But I don't want him running for president. Doug, it's not your time yet. You know, wait four years. <laughs> you know, but he's an interesting guy. He's the one that actually objected to, uh, I think, something. Or, I forgot what he objected to, but he made a really good comment on the deep state. So I don't think he's necessarily as deep state as some of the other people. Anyway, so, but this, they're not going to win. And they're not going to be vice president either because they're they're saying all these nasty things about Trump. Trump does value loyalty. He's a business guy, right? So you don't want to rise in the Trump Corporation. You don't badmouth the you know the CEO. You don't call Trump a you know whatever is he called, (laughs) whatever the Democrats are called. You don't do that because he he notices. And he you know there's um, I tend to remember little little insights, little fascinating things that that few other people do. It's really kind of interesting. And so I remember when he was being interviewed, I think it was, I don't know, it wasn't Chris Wallace, but it was somebody fairly liberal, George Stephanopoulos. I don't know who it was. Anyway, he's being interviewed and he was talking about uh, the interviewer asked, you know, you really consider a lot of stuff. He says, uh, you know, he says, he says, what do you think about? And Trump looks at him with that, with that stern eye, you know, that mugshot look. And he says, I think about everything. And like, oh, that's pretty good insight. I can remember that. Uh, the other thing I remember, and I mentioned this a couple of days ago is Kamala Harris, you know, born to illegal alien parents who had no uh, right to be in the country, so she's not actually a citizen, uh, according to the 14th Amendment. And I'll get to that article in a bit. Um, uh, said that, uh, you know, the American people want us to put food on their table. She actually said that. You know, it was in a debate. 
it was um, twenty. It was twenty twenty. You know, running for president, running against uh, Brandon, and she said the American people want us to put food on the table. Not that the American people want to be able to put food on the table. She said the American people want us. In other words, she wants. She said the American people want the government to put food on their table. That's how warped this person is. Although it would be fun to see her, in the, you know, as president, just to see how bad things could get, because they'd be funny. You know, President Cackle. And people are like, oh, you can't have her in. She'd be worse than Biden. No, nobody's worse than Biden. She'd be, she'd be just as bad. Uh, the only difference is she's at least competent enough to probably not start a nuclear war by accident. That would be the one saving grace about Kamala Harris. If she started a nuclear war, it'd be on purpose. But she wouldn't start one by accident, not knowing the difference between reality and fantasy land. Uh, she's got her own fantasy land and liberal land, but that's a different story. Okay, what else have I got here? Uh, I think I had one more opening comment. Uh, to do, oh, yeah. <laughs> then I'll take a break. This is fascinating. This is hysterical. Uh, I heard in the news that uh, Brandon's rebuilding Trump's wall. I'm like, what? Not only that, he's breaking a bunch of, uh, you know, of his own regulations, his own environmental stupidity to do it. And I thought to myself, this took like a nanosecond. And I thought, okay, so why would Brandon start acting like Trump? Oh, I know. It's an election year. He's losing badly to Trump. So my theory is, this is just instant, you know, gut reaction. My theory is that Brandon is going to look as much like Trump as possible. You know, I'm not going to say moving to the center. He's going to start sounding like a Republican. This is this is right out of the Obama playbook because Obama wants a fourth term, right? So, so what 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 Biden's going to do? What Brandon's going to do? Is he's going to start, uh, you know, either curbing regular? He might even start drilling for oil. <laughs> you know, the, that'll be the real test, okay? Whether he opens up, uh, you know, and if he does fracking, that'll be really hysterical. But what he's going to tell all his constituents is, look, we're just going to do this temporarily. Uh, I'm going to become become Trump for the election. You know, uh, lie to the Republicans, have them vote for me or have the Democrats vote for me, you know, so that the country gets better. You know, talk about lowering the gas prices, talking about increasing the energy, uh, talk about keeping out illegal aliens when he brought in 15 million of them. So that's ultimate. That's true hypocrisy. He's going to look and sound like Trump and actually have Trump policies because he knows those policies work. Well, Obama knows those policies work. See, Obama doesn't want policies to work. Right. The left doesn't want policies to work and they know Trump's policies worked. So they knew by doing the opposite of what Trump did, they wouldn't work and they destroy the country, which is their goal. Right. But they don't want people to know that they're trying to destroy the country. They want people to think that they were trying to make the country work, which is impossible given their policies. So it's, it's irrational to think that the Democrats want the country to work when they're doing policies that do just the opposite. Well, somewhat's work. I say, I always think about my uh, progressive reporter. Now, the progressives are a different bunch. They do want the country to work, and they want money in people's hands. How they want to get that money in people's hands is something I completely disagree with, but that's why we talk on the show. That's why it makes things interesting. Anyway, um, so, uh, so Brandon, you watch. You watch. Mark the tape, as Rush Limbaugh used to say. It is October 5th, you know, 726 in the morning. So it probably starts at 725. So 725 a.m. Central Time. You know, October 5th, I said that Brandon is going to become Trump for the election season. And then he's, but he's going to tell all his supporters secretly he's going to go back to being Brandon. In other words, Obama, you know, as soon as the election's over. Well, I'd say it's not going to work. They think it's going to work, but it's not going to work, which means the only way they can win is the way they won last time. They have, they have to steal the election. So if you really want to know about stealing the election, start, start interviewing Democrats. Don't talk to Republicans. You know, they helped the coup. They actually helped put Brandon in. If you really want to know who stole the election, put Obama. He's the one. Obama's the one that should be before Congress. But the Geldings won't do that. 
But he, he's the one they need to ask. Uh, you know, in fact, well, I'm hoping Jim Jordan becomes speaker. My other trust was Devin Nunez, who used to run the Intelligence Committee. Uh, Jim Jordan runs the judiciary. So you put Obama on the stand and you say, uh, well, tell us about your uh, spying of the Trump uh, administration, uh, spying of Trump before the, the 2016 election. Uh, well, I didn't spy on Trump before the 20. Yeah, you did. We know you did. Here's the evidence. I want to hear more about it, though. You're under oath. This is perjury. So now he's under oath, right? So now he only has two options. Uh, say he doesn't know, which is probably what he'll do, or, or take the Fifth Amendment, which means he knows, but he's not going to say because <laughs> it might incriminate him. So that's the honorable way to do it. But he's not going to do that. He'll say, he'll say he doesn't know because they never want to take the Fifth because then you'll look guilty. But they can't convict you if you take the Fifth because you haven't actually incriminated yourself. But somebody else can. So that's what they should do. You have Obama before Congress to talk about his spying, talk about how he ran the Brandon administration. I mean, he's the one you want to talk to. Him and Susan Rice and Valerie Jarrett and uh, Michelle Obama. I don't think she has as much in it. She's, she's more into, uh, uh, into the show, <laughs> into the vanity, and into using Air Force One as her personal SUV. And so that, that's a different story there. But, that, but Michelle, but Obama, Barack, Hussein, you know, Obama, the, the Marxist Muslim, the destroyer of America, uh, the one who wants to fundamentally, fundamentally transform us into a communist di- 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 dictatorship with him as, you know, uh, El Presidente for life. He's the one that should be on the stand. That's the one, the puppet master. And then after him, you get George Soros, who's Obama's puppet master. And I don't know who runs George Soros. <laughs> I haven't a clue. Uh, anyway, and if uh, members of the FBI, KGB have a problem with that, call me up. 215-383-3832. That's how it works. All right. So what I'm going to do is take a break now at 729. 729. And come back with uh, more information for you. I'll probably start my articles. And I've got a bunch. And then it's uh, top of the hour, 8 o'clock. I've got an interview, a classic interview. And then the rest of the time, we'll just kind of BS <laughs> our way through the rest of the show. Um, but uh, I do have, and I forgot to put this on. There's a, there's a, um, I have a, uh, I, I had the Give, Send, Go site uh, on the show. But I also have PayPal uh, as well, too. And that might be a better deal for folks that want to contribute. PayPal.me.com slash Action Radio. So let's do that, too. All right. There we go. Uh, back, uh, yep, still 729. Back in a bit. Here is your Action Radio contact and website information. The call-in line is 215-383-3832. Our show site is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Same link, live and a podcast. Please share all our shows. We have live chat at the bottom of the broadcast page available worldwide. Sign in to your free account and type away. We have an internet Skype line where you can call the show worldwide also. Please see the broadcast page for our Skype name. Call in during the show to get approved. Our bill writing site is writeyourlaws.com. W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S. Writeyourlaws.com. This is where anyone can write a bill and start the process of it becoming law. My paid and free subscription column is at gregpenglis.substack.com. Please consider a paid subscription of $5 per month or greater. For contributions to Action Radio, please go to givesendgo.com slash actionradio. We have over 20 Action Radio Facebook groups. Use the Facebook search window by putting in Action Radio to find our groups. My public email is greg at writeyourlaws.com. Please contact me about advertising on Action Radio and helping our mission of freedom. Thank you for listening.
Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. Few try. Even fewer go on to get a license. I believe a major reason for that is how we teach people how to fly. My book is designed to help you navigate the flight training system, but it's so much more than that. It really describes an entirely new way to teach flying. So if you've never tried a lesson or got discouraged in your training and quit for any reason, this book can help you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Pankless Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. Well, that sounds good. Even better. Okay, how about your car? If you want the best service for your vehicle, please talk to James at Florida Stores Automotive. Conveniently located at 6715 Caroline Street in the historic district of Milton, Florida. Right between the Milton Bakery and the Blackwater Trail. Whether you need an oil change or an entire engine replaced, this is the place. The phone number is 850-623-6651. That's 850-623-6651. Call, ask questions, and get the information you need. Florida Stores Automotive is a full-service automotive shop for both domestic and imports, modern and classic. It is a family-owned business here in our Milton community. Open weekdays from 7.30 to 5 p.m., Florida Stores Automotive is a convenient place to keep your car maintained and on the road. Ask them about Firestone Tires and the rotation and maintenance plan. Florida Stores Automotive. I go there. You should, too. Do you know your way around healthcare, insurance, pharmacies, surgery, alternative treatments and choices? I don't. Which is why I'm so glad I met Priscilla Romans, had her on Action Radio, and learned about health patient advocacy. She is the founder of Great Care. And now as an affiliate of Great Care, we are proud to offer through our discount code, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws, a 10% discount. Grace Care saves you both time and money. They provide medical advocacy, consultation, advice, and recommendations nationwide. Their website is gracecare.com. That's G-R-A-I-T-H care.com. You can email them at gracecare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Great care, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. Action Radio, part of the ADHD Radio Network, the ultimate free speech zone. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed and have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. At Action Radio, we don't report the news. We are the news. 
every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask, to the answers no one has thought to consider, to the actions no one has dared to take, that is Action Radio. Okay, we're back, 7.35 here, Central Time. Uh, it's daylight savings for now, but it's going to be turned back, which is stupid. You know, we should never turn our clocks back. We should leave them exactly where they are on daylight savings time and stop this nonsense. And then call that standard time. Anyway, so uh, we have lots to talk about, lots of things going on. Um, I've, uh, I've gone into the, the article vault. So I always keep these articles around just for, for times like this um, because you never know when uh, I'm going to have a whole show all to myself, which is like I do today. So I already prepared my interview. Uh, for with uh, Ken Stern earlier this morning, so uh, I'm mean, up about three hours before showtime. So it kind of it's actually good because it gets me awake. <laughs> so I don't I don't just go like half asleep. And I did one show where I woke up 12 minutes before the show started. <laughs> it was actually one of the best ones we ever did because uh, I, I had nothing prepared, totally improvised. Uh, I was exhausted. I was just I was doing a job, full time job, two hour show, and I literally woke up 12 minutes before airtime. And for one time, I woke up I think 10 minutes after airtime. And uh, one of my reporters, I think Shirley Watchell was like, hello, Greg, <laughs> did, you, did you forget something like the show? <laughs> it was really funny. So I definitely have my moments. Okay, so one of the big um, disagreements out there, and it's by design, is on the 14th Amendment and the subject to the jurisdiction clause uh, and the idea that people born on U.S. dirt are citizens regardless of whether they're in the country legally or not, regardless of whether they're foreign nationals or not. Uh, I even had Christina Bob on recently, and I was, I was telling her, uh, or actually I wasn't telling her, but we were talking, uh, about the fact that I believe that we can correct the the mistakenly given citizenship to people uh, and go back a, at least a couple of you know generations and and come up with a new status for folks whereby they could be permanent residents but they can never vote uh, and they can never uh, serve on a jury um, until such time as they go through the regular immigration process like anybody else because they were given something that they were never entitled to and all those that came in on um, chain migration uh, they shouldn't have been here either. And so we're, we're going to put them in a position, uh, especially uh, now if they've gone through the immigration process. I mean, this is a mess. This really is a mess to get into this. But it, it'll have to be on a case-by-case basis. But we need to immediately revoke any status given to anybody who came in under Brandon. That's the first thing. Second thing is we have to immediately suspend uh, – we have to correct the status of any person who's born in the country to an illegal alien uh, as far as you can. You know, and the first generation is going to be easy. It's like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I, you know, especially, you know, 18 or under 18 because they're minors anyway. Um, and so, no, you know, we're going to we're going to correct you to the citizenship of your parents. And the countries are like, well, well, well we're not going to accept that. I said, well, OK, fine. Then we're going to give you non-status. So you're going to be, you know, uh, we're going to give you resident status. Uh, so we'll put, reg, you know, resident. Yeah, I think just uh, not even, yeah, permanent. I don't even say permanent. I'd say resident status. Okay, you can be here, but, you know, <laughs> we've got a problem. And then they start negotiating with the countries. Hey, th- this is your citizen. Do you want him back? <laughs> you, well, maybe you can't do that either. Anyway, but there's some kind of permanent status, but they can't vote. See, the whole problem is it's bad enough that people are here who shouldn't be here. You know, chain migration, birth citizenship, and all kinds of other stuff. Um, but the, the voting is the worst. And then, of course, taking jobs and taking up money. You know, so, so people say, well, you can't, you know, you can't throw these people out. You can't do this. You can't do that. Well, what are we going to do to them? You know, to to uh, to give uh, some kind of uh, um, what's I'm trying to think of? Um, it's, it's not uh, it's not reparations. It's uh, what what do they call it? Restitution. There we go. Thank you. 
brain's not working. Resti- restitution to Americans that had to pay for all these illegals and people that shouldn't be here. So that's the real problem. So the real problem is not what are we going to do with these people that were given citizenship incorrectly uh, that has to be changed. The real problem is how are we going to, uh, you know, uh, take, uh, how are we going to give restitution to Americans that paid for millions of people that should never have been here, that impact all our lives, you know, kids in school, traffic on the highways, you know, voting for people that would never have won had there not been illegal votes. I mean, those are, those are huge, huge issues. So, uh, you know, and, and the people that came here under a policy that was wrong, I'm sorry. You know, it's like someone that gets $200,000 from a bank when they only ask for 200. You, you don't get to keep the money. You're never entitled to that. In the same way, if someone's given uh, U.S. citizenship mistakenly because of a policy, because all these hospitals are typing U.S. citizen on birth certificates, that, you know, that they have no right to do, that's not my problem. This, that's what we call a mistake. And this mistake needs to be corrected. So I found an article from Freedom 1776, uh, and it's called Illegal Aliens Uncategorized June 6th of 2019. Uh, I can't find who wrote it. <laughs> you know, I can't find an author. But anyway, so look up a free, uh, uh, free D-O-M-O, free Domo 1776. This is what this, that's the website. All right. Let me see. Oh, oh hang on. Uh, I got the website. It says protectingtheconstitution.home.blog. I can't see it. Anyway, I've got it. <laughs> you know, but the quotes are real. So uh, hopefully you can find it. I'll, I'll post this on Facebook. So it will be public so anybody can find it if you can find my Facebook page, which is heavily censored. All right. The 14th Amendment does not, and the not is in capital letters, does not give citizenship to the children of foreigners born in the U.S. Okay. And it actually prohibits it. So what's happened is all these people who got citizenship, you know, just because they were born on U.S. dirt uh, and their parents are foreigners, uh, that was unconstitutional. That was a crime. And we cannot pay, we cannot reward crimes. You know, the question is what you do with these people, but the, but the thing is that they, they, were, the, they didn't commit the crime. Uh, they're just an accomplice because uh, they probably never corrected it because they don't care. They want, the, they want to be here, right? But the hospitals and all those that believe the policy and all those in government and the fact that this has never been corrected, even though the 14th Amendment was written back in the 1800s, you know, needs to be fixed. The article says, let me just move some stuff around here at my desk so I can read this properly. I have trouble, enough trouble reading anyway because I think too fast. So I'm actually looking ahead and I get screwed up because I think I see a word and I get it wrong. That's ADHD. All right. Before the 14th Amendment was ratified, the Republican-controlled House and Senate passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866. That's 1-8, folks, not 2-0. 1866, or actually 1-9. So this is 100 years. It was 98 years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So this is the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Its intended purpose to give citizenship to the former slaves. That was a good thing. Slavery is different. If you're brought here against your will, okay, and made a slave, you know, citizenship, absolutely not a problem. Then it says Democrat President Andrew Johnson vetoed the act, but the House and Senate were able to get two-thirds vote in both, thereby overriding Johnson's veto. That's a good thing. The act stated that all persons born in the United States and not subject to any foreign Power. So let me say, in fact, I have to find this bill. That's what it says when they say not subject to any jurisdiction. They should have used these words in the 14th Amendment. This is the act stated that all persons born in the United States. So these people who were born in the United States, they were slaves. They were born in the United States as slaves. All right. So to me, those are citizens. All right. Because slavery is illegal, unconstitutional, and disgusting. All right. So this is that all persons born in the United States and not subject to any foreign power. In other words, not a citizen of any foreign nation, right? That's what they should have said even better. Uh, excluding Indians not taxed. I, don't know, I guess the tax 
would make people citizens of the United States, are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States. Okay, so all persons born in the United States, not subject or, or not a citizen of another foreign nation, okay, excluding Indians not taxed, are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States. So the only way you can become a citizen of the United States is to be born to people who are not foreigners, okay? You can only become a citizen of the United States if you're born to a citizen of the United States, all right? That shouldn't be an issue. That shouldn't, and it makes perfect sense. And people are like, well, what if you're born on, you know, U.S. soil? It doesn't matter because the 14th Amendment is not geographical jurisdiction. It is citizenship jurisdiction. And that's the big mistake that everybody makes. Okay, when we talk about this, this is citizenship. So obviously, it's citizenship jurisdiction. Do you hear anything about being born, you know, on the land of the United States, on the territory of the United States, of the soil of the United States? No, you don't. It just says born in the United States. And and this is a condition. This is just as valid as being born in the United States, not uh, not uh, subject to any foreign power. In other words, not subject to any foreign jurisdiction. In other words, not a citizen of another country. I wish they just said that. All persons born in the United States to parents not citizens of another country, excluding Indians not taxed, are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States, which means anybody who is born to people who are citizens of a foreign country are not citizens of the United States, according to the Constitution. So this is why all those all, we, millions, this is millions of people, this may be 20, 30, 40 million people, have to have their mistakenly, illegally, unconstitutionally titled American citizenship corrected. That is going to be a mess, but it has to be done. Otherwise, people are going to keep coming here, and the hospitals are going to keep putting U.S. citizenship on birth certificates when they have no right to do that. So I have a bill that says, you know, just the hospitals should get, that, that practice has to be suspended. I don't know who else is doing it. Before the 14th Amendment was ratified, the Republican-controlled House and Senate passed civil rights. I already read that. Okay, there we go. I'm sorry. However, the Republicans were concerned that some Democrat-controlled Congress and presidency uh, of the future might overturn the act, so they decided an amendment to the Constitution was needed and proposed the 14th Amendment. So that's how it came about. The Republicans were concerned that Democrat-controlled Congress – see, they already knew the Democrats had nothing to do with America. <laughs> you know, why? Because the Democrats had formed the Confederacy and tried to overthrow the U.S. government you know, in, a, in an armed rebellion and insurrection. That's what the Confederacy was all about. You know, that the secession of the states and the overthrowing of the U.S. government by declaring war on it. <laughs> so for those that wanted so, – so this is why the Democrat Party basically is an illegal party because they're the only party that engaged in armed insurrection with the capacity to overthrow the, uh, the government of the United States. Okay? People forget that. I didn't even think of it until just you know, relatively recently. All right. So the Republicans were concerned that Democrat-controlled Congress and presidency of the future might overturn the act. So they decided an amendment to the Constitution was needed. Well, see, but now they just ignore the, the, the amendment to the Constitution. See, that's the problem. So that's the 14th Amendment. It says, in addition, the 1857 Supreme Court ruled in the Dred Scott case that Negroes could never be citizens. So the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was in direct contradiction to the Supreme Court's Dred Scott ruling. Well, I got news for you, Supreme Court. Okay, the laws are supreme over Supreme Court rulings. Okay, unless the Supreme Court finds that that law, you know, is unconstitutional with the parties involved in the case, in which case they can write an opinion, and then it's up to the the Congress to say, well, you know, the Supreme Court said this is unconstitutional. Uh, maybe we should change it, or maybe we should uh, overrule the Supreme Court. See that that that's what a co-equal branch of government would do, right? So so the so the Dred Scott, of course, is a terrible decision. 
saying that Negroes could never be citizens of, of the United States. I mean, who, who do these Supreme Court people think they are? They all should, Congress should have immediately removed anybody that voted for Dred Scott off the court, kicked their asses off. That was a horrible decision. And when Supreme Court justices, made, excuse me, judges, I misspoke. When Supreme Court judges make a decision so horrible, so egregious, so anti-Constitution uh, as to constitute horrible behavior, when the standard is only bad behavior, they need to be removed from the court by the Congress. That's the job of Congress. Okay? That's the check and balance on the Supreme Court is when they screw up so badly, so obviously badly, so unconstitutionally that their asses are thrown off the court. But the Congress doesn't do that because they're a bunch of geldings. They're a bunch of weenie baby butt wipes. Notice I'm getting more direct in my language. <laughs> All right. So that was the situation. All right. Now, let's get to the good people. Back to the article. Senator Jacob Howard, author of the 14th Amendment. So remember that name, Jacob Howard. This is critical. Author of the 14th Amendment made it quite clear in 1866. That's two years after the Civil War, which ended in 1864. 1866, that the 14th Amendment does not, N-O-T, capital letters, not give citizenship to the children of foreigners born in the U.S., Okay, let me say that one more time so everybody gets it. Mark, are you getting this in the Netherlands? All right. The 14th Amendment does not give citizenship to the children of foreigners born in the U.S. Okay, that's it. And he said it in a speech. He said in a speech on the Senate floor, which I'm going to read in a second. Just checking in with Marco. Marco's got a thumbs up from earlier. <laughs> I'm sure he's listening, but, you know. Anyway, oh, I'm, I'm, I haven't muted myself by accident, so that's good. Okay, so life is good. Senator Howard said, every person born within the limits of the United States and subject to their jurisdiction is by virtue of natural law and natural, uh, natural law and natural law, a citizen of the United States. Okay. So in other words, every person born within the limits of the United States, that'd be the boundaries, right? And subject to their jurisdiction of, subject to their jurisdiction. What do you mean their jurisdiction? Their jurisdiction would be the states individually. Okay, because this is a country of these United States. The states are the important part. The states is the country of the United States. United is, is the, you know, under the Constitution, but the states themselves, the states are independent countries. When we say states, we just, you could even say countries. So we are not the United States of America. We're the United Countries of America where the countries of America decided to create a, a national government, excuse me, a federal government to carry on a few things that the states couldn't resolve themselves. In other words, interstate commerce, the transportation of goods and services across state lines. They could not resolve that amongst themselves. They could not agree on how to protect the border. They could not agree on a few other things. And so they said, you know what? For the good of the countries, of the United countries, in other words, the United States, We'll create a constitution, and we're going to actually give a, this, this federal entity some power. They're always going to be subordinate to the states. Always. Okay? It's amazing how many people have no idea how this country works. It's quite fascinating. Back to the quote. So Howard, excuse me, Jacob Howard said, every person born within the limits of the United States and subject to their jurisdiction, their jurisdiction, the jurisdiction of the states, of the countries, the jurisdiction of Colorado, North Dakota, Arizona, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Florida, South Carolina, New Hampshire, that is their jurisdiction, subject to their jurisdiction. That word is critical. I never even saw it myself until just recently, like, like today. This is, by this is by virtue of natural law, okay? Natural law being supreme over, over pretty much everything, you know? And in fact, uh, in other words, natural law, God-given rights. 
God-given rights are supreme over the Constitution. The fact that we have individual rights, the fact that our humanity is defined by individual rights is supreme over statutory law, is supreme over constitutional law. If the Constitution, if the states got together and were stupid enough to pass things that said that, uh, that you know, rights come from government, it still wouldn't be true. Because the foundation of this country, the belief that we have as Americans, the overriding principle, the thing that supersedes even the Constitution itself, is that rights come from God and that individual rights are supreme over government power. That's the definition of freedom right there. Boy, I'm going to roll today. (laughs) It's kind of scary. All right, back to the quote. It's by virtue of natural law and natural law, a citizen of the United States. This will not, of course, include persons born in the United States who are foreigners, aliens. That would include illegal aliens, which is even worse. They shouldn't even be here, right? who belong to the families of ambassadors or foreign ministers accredited to the government of the United States. All right. But it will include every other class of persons. Well, I got to take another look at this. This will not, of course, include the persons born in the United States who are foreigners. There you go. Aliens. Uh, or, and it, says, and it says, who belong. These are all separate by commas. So this will not, uh, okay, this will not, of course, include persons born in the United States who are foreigners. Aliens, comma, special case here, who belong to the families of ambassadors or foreign ministers are credited to the government of the United States. Right, so there you go. So these are the three categories of people that are not citizens, even if they're born in U.S. territory. Foreigners, aliens, and those who belong to the families of ambassadors. Some people say it only applies to the families of ambassadors. That's not true. Why would the families of ambassadors be any different than any other foreign national? I mean, diplomatic immunity does not give you citizenship. It doesn't, all right? So the three categories of people who are not citizens, even if they're born on U.S. dirt, are foreigners, aliens, and uh, families of ambassadors or foreign ministers. Okay? This is, but will include every other class of persons. That's kind of an interesting quote. I'll have to, I'll have to think about that one. Then it says, it settles the great question of citizenship and removes all doubt as to what persons are or are not citizens of the United States. This has long been a great desideratum, who's using big words, you must have an education, in the jurisprudence and legislation of this country. Okay, so I think it makes sense. Let me just kind of wrestle with this for a second here. Uh, it says, you know, uh, but we'll include every other class of persons. So in other words, that makes sense. Every other class of persons would be slaves, would be Indians not taxed, would be um, people who are in the country, anybody who was born in the country who are not foreigners. So if you're in the country, you're not a foreigner, okay, that would include tourists, <laughs> You know, people who are on work visas, uh, all that kind of stuff, they're foreigners. If you're on a work visa, you're a foreigner. So the other class of persons would be permanent residents. In other words, legal immigrants. So we can include slaves back in the 1800s. All right. That's a class of persons who would be uh, included in being born in the United States and not subject to another jurisdiction. All right. Uh, nowadays, permanent residents, those who come here legally as immigrants and get permanent resident status with the purpose of becoming citizens. I'm pretty sure that if you're born here to legal permanent residence that you become an American citizen. That would make sense anyway, because the United States has already said, yep, you can stay here for life. We've officially admitted, we've vetted you, you've, you've sworn an oath you know, to support and defend the Constitution, you said you'll never be a member of the Communist Party, you won't go on welfare, and we've decided that you're a person of good moral character and you can stay. Those people should be able to give birth to American citizens. That's the whole purpose of immigration, right? So, so lawful permanent residents, you know, Slaves, which don't exist anymore. Um, and uh, who else did I say? There was like one other category. I think that's about it. Anyway, so those would be the class of people. And of course, citizens can give birth to citizens. All right. There you go. Then it says Senator Edward Cohen. 
or Cowan, C-O-W-E-N, further clarified at this time. He said, a foreigner in the United States has a right to the protection of the law, but he is not, big capital letters, N-O-T, a citizen in the ordinary acceptance of the word. What does that mean? A foreigner in the United States has a right to the protection of the law. So in other words, if you're in the United States, you commit a crime. I think criminal laws apply to a certain extent. However, if you're in the United States and you're from, I don't know, Egypt, you know, or if you're from, you know, Macedonia, you know, or if you're from South Korea, or if you're from New Zealand and you come in this country and you commit a crime, you're subject to U.S. law. However, you still have your, your embassy to protect you. See, that's the thing, too. If you're, if you're a foreigner in the United States and you get in trouble in the law, who do you go to? The U.S. government? No. You go to your embassy. You go to your own government. Why? Because they have jurisdiction over you. All right? So if you're a citizen of France and you're accused of a crime in the United States, you know, who has jurisdiction over you? France. <laughs> so the French embassy is going to say, oh, well, do you think we should uh, negotiate with the U.S. embassy and we'll see if we can, the, the U.S. Justice Department and we'll see if we can uh, return you to France. Sorry, France. France does listen, by the way. I never hear from anybody from France. I love France. I visited uh, a couple times. Fabulous country. The French are very um, underrated uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, just uh, culture and innovation and technology and uh, art, science, music. There's a bunch of things that really make France kind of an interesting place. The cheese and wine is pretty good, too. Uh, but uh, I like the French character. <laughs> they're, pretty, they're pretty much like, uh, hey, we don't care. <laughs> you know, the rest of the world can go on. We're just going to be French. A uh, little bit of problem defending the country. But uh, don't forget that it was France that defended us against England in the War for Independence. So there's some really brave Frenchmen, uh, especially World War I, amazing, like pilots, aces, things like that. World War II, they got wrong. Um, but uh, World War I, uh, they're extremely brave, and I think extremely, uh, uh, along with Germany and, and England, extremely stupid for getting into this war. They should have all gotten together and said, look, we're not going to do this. We're not going to send millions of young men uh, into barbed wire and machine guns to get slaughtered. That's just stupid. So why they didn't get together and say, you know what, this is really dumb. Maybe Mark can explain that sometime. What is it about Europe that centuries of, of European history uh, involve countries killing each other? And it's the same countries. Spain, France, Germany, <laughs> Russia, England, <laughs> you know, uh, Italy. Have I left anybody out? You know, and they all get together and kill each other, you know, from the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, uh, Alexander the Great, the Macedonian Empire, uh, all these different empires, you know, uh, the Prussians, the, you know, Bismarck, <laughs> you know, Hitler, you know, Stalin. You know, there's a lot of uh, the kings of England, the kings of France, the kings of Spain. There's a long history of Europeans killing each other for, for stupid reasons. I don't understand it. I really don't. But uh, that's, that's history. So maybe Marco can, uh, you know, he'll hop on and explain that way sometime. All right. Next quote. Senator Trumbull, sponsor of the 1866 Act, said, What do we mean by subject to the jurisdiction of the United States? not owing allegiance to anybody else. That's what it means. So let me say that again. What do we mean by subject to the jurisdiction of the United States? And it's very simple. He says not owing allegiance to anybody else. So if you're a citizen of another country, you'll owe allegiance to that country. Now, whether you actually practice it or not, you owe it. doesn't mean you give it, but it means you owe it. You know, if you're a citizen of Namibia, you owe allegiance to Namibia, whether in the United States or not. If you're a citizen of, I don't know, Costa Rica, you know, you owe your allegiance to Costa Rica. 
you are subject to the jurisdiction of Costa Rica. Whether you're in Costa Rica or the United States, it doesn't matter. That's where your allegiance is. So not only are you subject to the jurisdiction, if you're Costa Rican, of the government and the nation of Costa Rica, you owe your allegiance to them too. So you cannot be a U.S. citizen unless you've gone through immigration and and been naturalized, in which case you have to renounce any allegiance to Costa Rica or wherever else you came from. So that's what it means. Okay, Does anybody have a question on this? I think it's pretty clear. Here we go. Senator Trumbull went on to explain how this clause might apply to an American Indian. Okay, uh, the term Native American doesn't apply because Native Americans are anybody who's born here. American Indian is more accurate. And I got that from American Indians. Who told me? Okay. It says, it cannot be said of any Indian who owes allegiance, partial allegiance, uh, if you please, to some other government that he is subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. So, and this is where it gets messy, and this is where I have a little gap in my knowledge. So if you are um, subject to the Cherokee Nation, if you're a Cherokee, or if you're a Comanche, or if you're a Lakasu, or if you're a Arapaho or Algonquin, I think that's Canada, uh, Iroquois, or Apache, you know, if you are a citizen of the nation, Navajo Nation, for example, are you a citizen of the United States? Well, I don't know. It's kind of interesting, doesn't it? So there are nations within the United States. So the states themselves are countries. We have nations of American Indians within the countries of the United States. And we have the United States overall, which has a representation in Washington. It's a mess. But here we are. Then it says Senator Reverdy Johnson, Democrat of Maryland. Okay, I don't remember this name, so this will be new. Explained that parents must be, quote, subject to the authority of the United States if their children born here are to be classified as having acquired the status of U.S. citizen. Let me say that again. The parents must be subject to the authority of the United States. See, if they're citizens of another country, they're, subject, they're not subject to the authority of the United States. They're subject to the authority of that other country, of where they are citizens, right? And it says if the children born here are to be clear, classified as having acquired the status of U.S. citizen. So that means U.S. citizens give birth to U.S. citizens. That's how it works. Then he says, now, all that this amendment provides is that all persons born in the United States and not subject to some foreign power shall be considered as citizens of the United States. I wish that said so in the amendment. The amendment says that citizenship may depend on birth, and I know of no better way to give rise to citizenship than the fact of birth within the territory of the United States, born of parents who were at the time were subject to the authority of the United States. Let me say that again. The amendment says that citizenship may depend on birth. And I know of no better way to give rise to citizenship, in other words, create U.S. citizens, than the fact of birth within the territory of the United States, born of parents who at the time were subject to the authority of the United States. In other words, people born in the United States to citizens of the United States. Now, that was the 1800s. They didn't have a lot of for, we didn't have a lot of foreign military bases then. John McCain was born, I think, in Germany or Panama. <laughs> he was born, so, he, John McCain was born outside the United States, but he was born to American parents. So American parents, so this, is why it's, this, is, this is why people get confused. So it's not being born in the United States that matters. It matters who your parents are. So if you're born to American parents and you're on a jetliner to Reykjavik, Iceland, your kid is an American citizen. Were they born on U.S. soil? No, they were born at 35,000 feet. Okay? Because, but because it's, it's citizenship jurisdiction, not territorial, it doesn't matter where they were born. It matters who they were born to. I wonder if the Netherlands, let's see Marco's on the line here. I wonder if this, uh, this I have no idea how Netherlands does this, but I'd be really curious. 
Anyway, most nations of the world aren't stupid enough to give citizenship to people who aren't already citizens or their parents aren't citizens. Most nations of the world aren't that dumb. We are for some reason because it's politically expedient. But that's the thing. And here's the proof. The proof is that if you're born to American citizens anywhere in the world, including 35,000 feet above it, okay, you're still American because the, your parents are subject to U.S. jurisdiction because they are, in fact, U.S. citizens. If you're born on United States soil, if you're right there in the heartland, you're in the middle of Oklahoma, right, and you're an illegal alien uh, and, and the father's a legal alien and you give birth to somebody on, a, on American soil, because you're illegal aliens, you're a kid is not subject to U.S. jurisdiction. That kid is not a citizen. That kid is subject to the parents and the country of the parents. Anybody have a question about that? Then it says, this understanding was upheld in 1872 in the slaughterhouse cases, which dealt with the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment. In the opinion, the Supreme Court stated that the 14th Amendment, remember, the Supreme Court is subordinate to the Constitution. Okay? So it, it, only when the Supreme Court agrees with the Constitution and not interprets it, but uses it correctly, are the Supreme Court cases valid? A lot of people would say that's wrong, but uh, they don't know what they're talking about, which is why I want to get Ellen Dershowitz on the show and debate him. I think he would agree with that. I'm really curious to see where he comes out on that. It's going to be very interesting to find out. So it said, or, uh, so, so the Supreme Court said, not that it matters, but the Supreme Court said <laughs> that the 14th Amendment overturns the Dred Scott decision by making all persons born within the United States and subject to its jurisdiction citizens of the United States that its main purpose was to establish the citizenship of the Negro uh, can admit of no doubt the phrase subject to its jurisdiction was intended to exclude from its operation children of ministers, consuls, and citizens or subjects of foreign states born within the United States. Pretty simple, huh? Now, that's interesting. This may be where this ridiculous claim that it takes a constitutional amendment to overrule a Supreme Court case. That's not true. Now, in fact, this Supreme Court, this constitutional amendment did overrule the Supreme Court case, but this, this constitutional amendment would have overruled all Supreme Court cases that apply. It would have overruled all laws that apply. <laughs> you know, it, over, it would have overruled a bunch of different things, uh, presidential executive orders, statutory laws, and Supreme Court opinions. So the uh, constitutional amendment overrules everything because it goes into the Constitution. It, it overrules everything in the federal government. But I'm wondering if this is where people got the ridiculous idea that it takes a constitutional amendment to overrule a Supreme Court opinion. It doesn't. It takes an act of Congress. Back to the article. The Supreme Court addressed subject to the jurisdiction again in 1884 in Elk v. Wilkins, a case that focused on the citizenship of an American Indian who had been born into a tribe but had later served his tribal, severed, excuse me, severed his tribal ties. Here, the court emphasized that a person not born into citizenship could not make himself subject to the jurisdiction. So you can't declare it yourself. You can't say, ah, I was born here. I'm subject to the U.S. jurisdiction. No, you can't do that. This is, not a, this is not a power of an individual to make themselves subject to U.S. jurisdiction. And it says subject to the jurisdiction of the United States without the consent of the United States. That would mean, you know, by, by naturalizing, right? It says, according to the court, no one can become a citizen of a nation without its consent. And those, that would also be states, too. <laughs> so this is why states don't have to accept illegal aliens, because we have state citizenship. The 14th Amendment is very clear, very clear that citizens of the United States are also citizens of the state in which they reside, which means that the states have citizens. Well, the states have citizens. They can also have people who are not citizens, and they can remove them. 
This is what these states need to do. They need to remove their illegal aliens. So you can't live here. I don't care where you go, but you can't live here. And the next state over says, well, you can't live here either. Sooner or later, they'll end up in California, Mission, New York, and uh, Massachusetts. I don't care. <laughs> as, long as, as long as they're not in Florida, I'm happy. Anyway, says the court emphasized that a person not born into U.S. citizenship could not make himself subject to jurisdiction. Okay, I read that. According to the court, no one can become a citizen of a nation without its consent. Specifically, the court held that although the plaintiff was born in the United States, in other words, on U.S. dirt, he was not granted U.S. citizenship through any treaty or statute and was consequently not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States under the 14th Amendment. So the slaughterhouse cases actually say, uh, define this quite well. So the slaughterhouse cases actually reinforce the subject to the jurisdiction clause, saying once again that illegal aliens, aliens, foreigners, anybody not a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident cannot give birth to an American citizen, no matter where you are. That's kind of interesting. It was exactly the opposite of what's done today. So not only is the Constitution against the practice, which is enough by itself, the Supreme Court's against it too. This is interesting. The court defined the jurisdictional requirement of the citizenship clause as requiring a person to be not merely subject in some respect or degree to the jurisdiction of the United States, but completely subject to their political jurisdiction and owing them direct and immediate allegiance. In other words, you can't be a citizen of a foreign country. You can't. This is the portion subject to their jurisdiction means the individuals are subject to the new government. Any person in the U.S. that is not a citizen is not subject to the U.S. government. Let me say that again. The portion subject to their jurisdiction means the individuals are subject to the government. In other words, the government can make regulations and laws over the citizens. Now, we can also replace the government and change it, but that's the function of government is to make you know, good and decent laws over the citizens to create the maximum freedom for the greatest number to protect life, liberty, and property. That's why government makes laws, okay? So in that respect, they have jurisdiction over us. We have jurisdiction over them because this is a nation of people, you know, it's, it's a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's not a, it's not a government, it's not uh, the government over the people. Although it's, it's an interesting relationship, so that might be a little complex, but basically it's true that we elect the government. The government operates with the consent of the governed, but that still gives the government the power to make laws over us and then we have to decide whether we consent or not to those laws. It gets complicated, but it's rather interesting. Anyway, it says the portion subject to their jurisdiction means that the, indiv- the Supreme Court means the individuals are subject to the government. Any person in the U.S. that is not a citizen is not subject to the U.S. government. And that's proof because where would they go if they're in trouble? Well, to the embassy of their citizenship, right? It says they are subject to the government from which they came to the U.S. They are subject to the government from which they came to the U.S. Here we go. Then it says, if they are British and the British government makes a law, that law applies to all British citizens. Actually, they're called British subjects. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Whether or not they are in Britain. Okay, let me say that again. If they are British and the British government makes a law, that law applies to all British citizens, whether or not they are in Britain. If they are Mexican citizens and the Mexican government demands all of its citizens return to Mexico, then those citizens are required to return to Mexico or face the consequences of refusing that demand. Any laws implemented by Britain or Mexico would in no way impact an American citizen in the U.S. or France or Italy, etc. U.S. citizens living, this is right from the article, U.S. citizens living and working in another country are still required to pay U.S. income tax because they are subject to the jurisdiction of the U.S. Say that again. But which means that uh, people who are subject to foreign power are not allowed to pay tax to the U.S. Okay, 
Maybe on a work visa. That'd be different. I'll have to look that up. But it says U.S. citizens living and working in another country are still required to pay U.S. income tax. Why? Because the government has jurisdiction over them. This is because they are subject to the U.S. jurisdiction. Then it, which, and the contrary to that, it's just the opposite, that uh, citizens who are subject to uh, another country, citizens of another country cannot pay tax to the U.S. government. Why? Because they're not subject to our jurisdiction, which this is why illegal aliens cannot pay taxes. All right? Foreigners cannot pay taxes because they're not subject to our jurisdiction. And the idea that Clinton created this ITIN, this individual tax identification number, right? So that citizens, so that people of other countries here illegally or even legally, but, well, not to say legally, no, but people who are here illegally uh, in this country who have ITIN numbers cannot pay tax legally. They can't do it because they're not subject to our jurisdiction. Only U.S. citizens are subject to our jurisdiction and can pay taxes to the U.S. government. Pretty simple, huh? All right. I wonder who wrote this. <laughs> this is really great. He says, any child born in the U.S. to non- are non-citizens. Let me say that again. Any child born in the U.S. to non-citizens are non-citizens. All of them need to be deported. I like this article. If they then want to become U.S. citizens, they need to apply and follow the same process as anyone else. So here's where it gets interesting. Now, I'm not even calling for that. But it says any child born in the U.S. to non-citizens are non-citizens. All of them need to be deported. That would be interesting. I don't fault people that were born here thinking that they were U.S. citizens. It's the government's failure to not fix that. However, they cannot become, they cannot, we cannot allow their mistakenly granted citizenship to continue. So they have to go into resident-only status. And that would stop chain migration. That would stop, uh, we have to stop this birth citizenship thing. uh, And we have to reverse as far back as we can you know, to correct citizenship and give people non, you know, non-citizenship uh, status, resident-only status, to stop this nonsense. I wouldn't deport them all. Uh, that would be, uh, you know, because the, what if their countries don't take them? So look, they're born in your country. It's not our problem. And they would have a point. And I would agree with that. So they can't all be deported, but they can't have this, their, their status changed. They can't have their status corrected to be residents, not citizens, which means they can vote, can't serve in a jury, um, as to working, hmm, that would be interesting too. But they shouldn't, shouldn't be able, they should not be able to get welfare. They should not be able to get any benefits because they're residents only, right? Oh, Greg, that's cruel. Hey, look, it's not my problem. It's, cruel to, it's more cruel to Americans to have them stay here. All right. Then it says, I'm fed up with illegals getting college benefits my own children don't get. Well, that's true. So I'm fed up with American taxpayers paying over $135 billion every year to support illegal aliens. This is good. I wonder who wrote this. Do, 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 published by Freedom of 1776. Oh, Frank Johnson. Then we got a name. Frank Johnson. Hey, Frank. Nice to meet you. No, that's a comment. I'm sorry. Frank Johnson made a comment. Uh, that's not the author. Correction. <laughs> I don't know who wrote this, but uh, I got to find out. I'm going to go back to their website. Uh, protect the constitution.home.blog. There we go. Good article. All right, we're going to um, what are we going to do now? Eight fifteen should be done by about nine o'clock. Gives me another hour. All right, let's do that. So um, yeah, a few more things. I'll take a break probably through the next hour. So let me play you uh, an interview that I did back in uh, 2017, and this was this would be a good time to do it. Eight fifteen. Yeah, that's perfect. Where's my interview with Ken Stern? Ken, Ken, Ken. Let's see if I can find you. 
It'd be the one that's too loud. Oh, there it is. They always bring things on a little bit too loud from uh, whenever I upload an audio clip. Okay, so here we go. I found it. Uh, so let me set, up, set the stage here. Oh, here we go. There's Marco. He says, can't explain it. Know what, ha- know what happened. This is the part where I live in the Netherlands has been part of Germany, France, Spain, and Netherlands multiple times. That's interesting. So as the borders change, you know, the borders change as, as, as recently as World War II, Poland especially. So if you're born in a place that was Russia and then it became Poland or the other way around, where's your citizenship? Boy, Europe has its own problems. <laughs> anyway, so that's really interesting. So, yeah, well, who knows? European Union. You know, these, these United European states. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Anyway, so, so Ken Stern, just to set this up, Ken Stern was the CEO of NPR, which is National Public Radio, which is a socialist arm of the U.S. government, basically a, a leftist propaganda news service. They do not have to advertise, uh, even though they do collect a lot of money. When they'll have that, that deep voice, uh, calming voice says, uh, this uh, program is brought to you by a grant from the Exxon Corporation. Okay? So, wait a minute. Exxon? <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's an oil company. They're funding. It's probably like an environmental special, right? <laughs> you know, this special on the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico brought to you by a grant from Exxon. So, they do take corporate money. So, if they're going to take corporate money, why don't they do it the old-fashioned way and just advertise? Okay? So, National Public Radio. National Socialist Government Radio has an unfair advantage over commercial radio because commercial radio doesn't get taxpayer money to support itself. So National Public Radio has two choices as I see it. They either have to uh, operate without any government or taxpayer funding at all and call themselves National Radio <laughs> or pick up another name. Um, well, actually, that's, that's their only choice. Uh, or they need to, or they need to uh, if they want to, they, they have chosen to either operate or not operate. If they choose to operate, then they can't get any government money, none. If they choose to not operate and go out of business and become commercial radio, then that's true, too. Looks like I got a website from Marco. I might check that out uh, during the break. Anyway, so that's, that's the choice as I see it. So National Public Radio is leftist government you know, propaganda radio. Now, one of the guys that was the CEO, this is where it gets interesting, right, decided it would be an interesting idea to go live with conservatives for a year, you know, go live with the enemy, you know, go do what they do, hunt. You know, go uh, go to NASCAR races. You know, uh, go to barbecue. Man, go to church. <laughs> All the things that leftists don't do. And apparently, he found that uh, conservatives, Americans, rednecks. <laughs> you know, yeah, redneck. You know, with a rifle on the back of the truck. You know, I have a good time. I get my barbecue. Got my Jack Daniels. It was fine. Get some country music going. We're having a good time. This is where America lives, right? And so this guy goes out and meets real Americans, and he's shocked. Oh my God. They're not horrible, disgusting people. They don't, uh, you know, they're not, they're not cannibals. They don't eat their young. <laughs> you know, they're, they're actually saying they're, they're, they believe in what they, they, you know, they actually believe their convictions, and they're not that bad. So he got a real shock. So I had some fun with them. I asked some really interesting questions. So this interview originally aired November 13th. I wonder if it was a Friday. November 13th. I think it actually was a Monday um, based on the, on the conversation of 2017. So this is WEBY, 1330 AM, a station that no longer exists in the form it did when I worked there. Used to be Northwest Florida's News and Talk Later. So, any reference to a phone number other than 215-383-3832 is a station that doesn't exist. Don't call it. You ain't going to get through. Uh, any, any reference to WEBY 1330 AM, that doesn't exist either. <laughs> so, this is Talk Radio. This is the Action Radio Citizen Legislature. So, enjoy um, what I thought was a fascinating chat. And he's a little quieter than I am, so you may have to play with your volume a little bit. Turn him up. Turn me down. Um, it's probably the case anyway. So enjoy, and I'll see you in about 45 minutes. 
we have a very special guest. This is a real honor. And so we're going to get uh, get to write to our, our, our guests here. So uh, you can hop on the line. Phone numbers to call in, 850-623-1330. That's 850-623-1330. And uh, let's introduce our guest right now. He was a litigation attorney and deputy counsel for the 1996 Clinton-Gore campaign. He was a senior advisor to the International Broadcasting Bureau, overseeing operations like Radio for Europe and Voice of America. He was the CEO of National Public Radio for over eight years and now runs Palisades Media Ventures. Please welcome my very special guest, Mr. Ken Stern. Hi, Greg. Hello, Ken. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm having a great time. I just I was cracking up during the, the intro because we have one of our wonderful sponsors, uh, Jay Gun- Jay's Guns, was just on. And I'm just thinking to myself, here you are coming from, uh, from National Public Radio. I'm thinking to myself, you know, you never hear a National Public Radio start off with, and now a grant from the Glock Firearms Foundation. You know, it just doesn't yeah, happen. You, you, I live in Washington, D.C. You don't get many ads for stores uh, saying you can come in and fire on fully automatic weapons. So it's a... I was laughing as well when I heard the when I was listening to the ad. And it's interesting because I've had that reaction from people, you know, listening into to the the media that we have here. One of the first things from my California callers and from from Washington D.C. is is the difference in commercials, and that makes just a huge difference. And that's part of one of the things that I want to talk about is the difference between you know the, the liberal media, the conservative media. And I'm so glad to have you on because we don't talk to each other. That's right. Well, so I think um, uh, uh, we don't. We the, the uh, the reason we're talking, I think, is uh, because of my new book, a Republican Like Me, How I Left, left the Liberal Bubble and Learned to re- Love the Right. And I think the key to understanding is we all live in our bubbles and we don't interact with each other very much. So um, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book and why I'm so glad to be talking with you, Greg. This is going to be fun. And, I, and like I say, it's a pleasure to have you on. So the book is available on Amazon. And uh, anywhere else uh, people can get it? Or do you have book signings coming up? Are you, are you coming to Florida to come talk to us? Uh, you know, um, so it's available on Amazon, uh, and thank you for the plug. No problem. Uh, and, uh, you know, most bookstores. Uh, uh, and I may actually be coming to, to Florida in the, in the spring. Uh, I've been talking about with some folks about coming down, so hopefully I can make it. Okay. Let, that'd be great. Let, let's get folks filled in on, on what exactly you did. You, you left the, the ivory tower of, of, of liberal radio and, and actually ventured out into conservative country, the, the bitter clingers clinging to our Bibles and, and guns and everything else. And yeah. let's talk about that. We'll get to some specifics. But overall, you know, why did you do it and, and, and what did you find? So I did it because, uh, um, like a lot of people, I've been concerned about how divided we are, how angry everyone is um, at each other, the other side. Um, and the reason frankly, um, that we're so angry and so divided because um, we don't know each other. Um, Democrats, no Democrats, Republicans, no Republicans. uh, And, and, you know, I decided to do my little bit by leaving my 94% Democratic ward, 100% Democratic household, spending a year with Republicans. Wow, that's interesting. And so did you come up with this on your own? Did anybody suggest it to you or just sort of, you know, came to you one day and said, I need to do something? No, so it actually came out. So I'll tell you the story. Um, you know, the, the, sort of the aha moment of the book, which is I live on this very nice street, um, Hobart Street, in a nice neighborhood in Washington D.C. called Mount Pleasant, mm-hmm. um, and we have we have a block party each year called Porch Fest. They're row houses, and every year the starts the parade and what's called the Hobart Street Pledge. And the pledge changes every year. And one year it went. Uh, everyone is welcome here on Hobart Street, white or black, man or woman, gay or straight, everyone but Republicans. <laughs> that, they and, actually said that? 
Yeah, it was a joke, but it also wasn't a joke, right? It's a ninety-four percent Democratic ward, yeah. and we've and this is you know we've all begun to think of the other party as the other. Yeah. And you know, for me, it was sort of that was the sort of starter's pistol. I was like, that can't be right, yeah. even as a joke. Uh, and that's really when I began thinking about this book. That is great because, you know, those of us who are conservatives, and we never call ourselves the right. It's fascinating. And we certainly never call ourselves the alt-right. We don't even know what that is. We all think of that as, as an invention of, of, the, of the liberal media. But for, for those of us here, especially when we hear diversity and tolerance and everybody's welcome, and it, it seems to us that it's like, you know, different skin colors as long as you all think the same. That's what it seems to be for diversity. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a really important point. And, and uh, uh, I'll say again, I'll keep saying this, you know, I think it, the, the the bubble runs both ways. Mm -hmm. We don't know the other side. But, you know, what, one of the things I said to my friends in the media mm -hmm. when I returned and made me a little bit unpopular in the mainstream media is, um, you know, one of the, one of the things is um, in the mainstream media, you know, a lot of good reporters try to do the good to the best work possible. Um, I don't believe any of it's fake news, but it is groupthink. I mean, it's yeah. like-minded people deciding what's important and what's not, who the right people listen to. And we would never cover race issues without, uh, with only white men, no matter how good they are. Mm -hmm. How can we cover uh, politics with people who all, you know, I'm, vast majority have voted for Hillary Clinton. It's just, it's not right. Why did you vote for Hillary Clinton? We're, we're sitting out here in, in Florida thinking you've got the Uranium One scandal, you've got the, the email scandal, you've got the Clinton Foundation, you've got all these bribes. We think of this as the real Russian scandal, and we're still scratching our heads going, how can you not see what we see? Yeah, so, so, uh, um, my, so, so you, you assume something, which happens to be true, that I did vote for Hillary Clinton. I mean, I, I, I think I probably voted more for against Donald Trump than they did for Hillary Clinton okay. because, um, you know, um, uh, uh, I hate the politics of division. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, you can accuse Hillary Clinton of the same, but I think he's, he is, to me, Donald Trump is the, he didn't cause the polarization in America, but he is sort of the perfection of the polarization in America. His, you know, he is exceptional at pitting people against each other, uh, and I think that's, you know, that's the risk we face in this country. Um, you know, whatever your views on uh, on Confederate statutes or your views on um, uh, NFL players kneeling during the national anthem, um, uh, they're not the biggest challenges facing this country. Mm -hmm. No one puts them on their list of top 100 issues. And, you know, to sort of call those out and to pit people against each other, that's sort of what I saw about Donald Trump that worries me. And that is interesting because I remember writing an article on this. You know, it's very similar to what you, your title is, are you a conservative or are you in the liberal propaganda bubble? And it's almost like these, these, these uh, similar titles. We're on the same vein coming at it from different angles. Because what I see is that the left actually created a false persona of Donald Trump because there's Donald Trump before the election and there's Donald Trump, you know, after he declared for the election. Uh, and it was, yeah, but before he was a candidate, I mean. And so it was almost like, you know, the racist, sexist, homophobe, Islamophobe, all that stuff that was piled on Trump, you know, he hates women, he, all this kind of stuff. None of that came out before he declared for the president. And so it, it's almost like the, the left creates this false persona, supports this false persona, persona, and that's the bubble that I see. So this is, there's a huge disconnect between, between what we see as Donald Trump, the, the builder, the, the, the corporate person, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the can-do kind of guy, 
life and what the liberal perception they're telling people. And I think that one of the greatest dangers is people are believing, you know, what I see as the created image as opposed to the real one. And I'll tell you a perfect example was when uh, the media said that, you know, Trump hates, um, thinks all Mexicans are, are rapists and murderers. And that wasn't the quote at all. You know, Donald Trump, what he said was some illegal aliens crossing our border are you know, rapists and, and murderers, and they, you know, they have to go back. And the media turned that into, Trump says all Mexicans are rapists and murderers. And that's totally false. And that is where that whole narrative started, the false narrative. What do you think? So it's interesting. So look, the, the, the dialogue around politics doesn't allow for a lot of nuance. So I tend to agree with some things you say and some things you don't say. Mm-hmm. So I do think the media has, uh, I actually wrote an article about this for Vanity Fair about a year ago. I sort of, right before the election, I went through the one day's worth of the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. You know, just a point in time, one source. There are 21 articles on Donald Trump, and they were all negative. Yeah. Uh, and that was in the front page. That was actually the sports section. It was the style section. It was the metro section. Every section but the food section. Um, and, and I think the... <laughs> that's uh, funny. And, I'm and, sorry, you know, that's funny. It, it, yeah, no, it was. It was sort of sad and, uh, and funny at the same time. Yeah. So I agree with you that I think the... the the media has turned every action of the president into a news story, um, uh, and every tweet into a news story, and every story, you know, every tweet into sort of the end of the world. So I agree with you. On the other hand, um, uh, um, he's done plenty. Uh, I mean, we can go through the list of things that he's done um, that I think encourage that type of coverage. And the second thing is he loves that. I mean, the, you know, this is actually sort of a. Um, uh, um, a, 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 a sort of this warped relationship between the president and the press, which is they get a lot of bang. The press gets a lot of bang for every tweet mm-hmm. um, uh, that the president does because it drives their <clears throat> drives their audience, and the president does as well. I mean, they are actually you know there's some uh, they don't actually have a deal, but um, you know in some world there's a deal between the press and the and the president because he gets a virtue signal every time he gets yelled at by the press signal to you know his to his supporters that he's right and they're wrong and um, I think he knows what he's doing so um, I agree with you that the, pre- the press has overdone it but I also dis- you know disagree with the characterization of Donald Trump because I think he intentionally does these things uh, in order to drive this narrative um, and you know and, and that I mean we sit down and go over tweets and stuff and you know have a good time doing that over a beer but um, you know uh, Look, I'd feel a lot better the president if he was actually a lot more effective in getting things done for the people who voted for him. I mean, 62 million people voted for him. They have real grievances and real needs. And I don't see this government, led by Donald Trump, uh, succeeding very much. This is why I'm so glad to have you on. And, by the way, you do not have to agree with me on anything. That's, <laughs> that's okay. No, I had someone from – there was a, we have a, a cross here, Bayview Cross. And there's a big controversy over it being uh, taken down as what we think is a, is a misinterpretation of the First Amendment. And yeah. so I had, a, I had a wonderful guest on from the Freedom From Religion Society, the folks that are trying to take it down. We agreed on absolutely nothing. We still had a great chat. So yeah, yeah. this is about information. Just, yeah. Yeah. And just one thing, you know, so the interesting. So mm-hmm. life, so just my sort of backstory is lifelong Democrat spending a year with Republicans. I even went down and changed my voter registration. Wow. And I held open the possibility that, you know, at the end of the year, you know, at the end of the book, I would stay Republican or I would, you know, pay bonds or what I saw and what I felt I would go back to being a Democrat. And I didn't either. Uh, I, I'm now a registered independent. And I really don't. I mean, I think the most the thing that came out of me most was sort of admiration for a lot of the people I met, but also incredible disenchantment with the political process on both sides. It does get crazy, and again, I just you were talking about getting things done, and with the president, and I, I look at it, I see Congress. In fact, my own Republican Party, 
I see as as holding things up. So we we think of like you know Mitch McConnell and and uh, and the speaker as, as part of the swamp. So it, it, we're, we're perfectly willing to criticize our own folks, and but I don't see a lot of that happening uh, on the Democrat side. Like you know, you take the case of uh, Bob Menendez versus uh, you know um, Judge Roy Moore, where he's you know Judge Roy Moore. Every, you know, every press article comes out. You know, he's he's guilty of this. He should step down, or or at least you know they think he should step down right away. And Bob Menendez hasn't been covered as much. We'll talk about that, and then when we come back from a break, I want to get into where you went and all the good things that you did on the trip. But what do you think of coverage of just those two things, Roy Moore and Bob Menendez? Yeah, so I think it's a really interesting question, and um, uh, I think at least on one level you're right. I mean, it's crazy at one level that Roy Moore, Roy Moore gets this coverage and Bob Menendez, a, sen- a sitting senator on, a corruption, on trial for corruption, gets very little coverage. Um, I, I don't actually know if that is a signal of the press, press's political bias or the press's interest in salacious material, because, um, you know, the corruption trial, I, mean, I think it's a little bit of both, frankly. Um, yeah. But, you know, they covered Anthony Weiner, uh, Weiner got wall-to-wall coverage. Um, the Weinstein case gets wall-to-wall coverage because it's about sex. And, you know, sex sells. I think it's a lot of it has to do with just the sort of the, you know, uh, um, Notion of what drives audience in this day and age. Um, yeah. So I think you know I think it's some I think you can make cases for both those things. Interesting. And then we go back to Bill Clinton, where it was like you know lying about it's okay, and you know why are we focusing so much on this? It's just fascinating the coverage goes. I want to take a quick break and when we come back. I want to find out about all your your NASCAR experience, your tea party, your <laughs> being with you know Steve Bannon's radio show. Let's go into the details of, of your experience on this. And yeah, uh, back in just a little bit, my special guest Ken Stern, uh, who wrote this amazing book, Republican Like Me: How I Left the Liberal Bubble and Learned to Love the Right. And we'll be back in just a bit. the world's greatest producer. That's a fantastic question. Uh, I don't think there's any good answer, um, uh, except for it's hard to get along when you don't interact with the other side. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, you know, um, one of the things I love about being here with you, and I don't consider myself the other side, but, you know, we're obviously different backgrounds. Oh, we're buds now, Ken. That's right. That's right. Uh, um, and it's not hard to become buds when you know people. Yeah. But here's, there was a poll during the election from the Washington Post, um, uh, and they went to Virginia, evenly, roughly evenly divided state, and they asked Trump voters, do you have any close friends or family members who are voting for Clinton? And they asked the same for Clinton voters. Yeah. And in each case, more than 50% said no. And think about that. I mean, there are dozens and dozens of people in that set, um, you know, close friends and family members. And they didn't know anyone from the other side. We're all thinking alike. Uh, we're all talking to each other. We're all consuming media that supports us. And it becomes easy not to dislike some, to dislike someone you do, when you don't know them. Well, and it well, goes and back to the whole diversity thing. thing. You know. Yes, I know. That's right. You know, because, yeah, because this is diversity. This is diversity. It's, it, you know, to not have this. It's weird. Have it. Ada, I'm getting yeah, an echo. I can't. I'm hearing. I'm hearing my voice hearing twice. My voice Maybe you can find out what's going on with me there. Um. I want to talk about your experience. experience. No, I'm hearing my voice in my head twice. Oh, there we go. Thank you very much. Boy, that was crazy. Um, I want to talk about your experience and and how you you came, you know, and what happened with that. I'm going to ask you the question when we're done with this. You know, what are you going to do with all this newfound knowledge? So let's kind of go through some of the things you did. Uh, NASCAR racing. What did you think of that? So uh, 
so you want to spend a year with Republicans. Um, I still live in my 94% Democratic ward. What do you do? Uh, and some of it is, you know, going to places where you know you're going to find a lot of Republicans. That's evangelical churches. That's pig hunting. That's you know NASCAR races. Places I don't normally go or ever go. So um, uh, I think each and every one of them was a great experience. And going to NASCAR and first of all learning that you need earplugs. Oh yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, which I did not know. Uh, uh, was, you know, and just sitting up in the sort of the, the, the army encampment over, over, um, Martinville Speedway, uh, sitting, you know, spending evening talking with folks, you get a very different view of the world, um, and of people than you would if you just sort of imagine what they were like. So you found everybody you talked to pretty accepting? I found everyone I talked to over the course of the year, almost, almost everyone, um, I mean, we're talking hundreds of people, yeah. uh, welcoming people, welcoming in their homes, we, Meals together, we sat bars together, we you know, we hunted together, uh, and I uh, we prayed together. Um, I felt everywhere people welcoming. And I found people to be complicated. You know, we all have stick figures of one another, um, uh, uh, cartoons of what the other side is like, and people are people. They have you know, they're doing things for their family and the community. They want the best things for for them. Um, they may have different views and ideas of how to get that done, but they are. You know, I found everyone to be by and large, thoughtful, welcoming, and, you know, wanting to do the right thing by America. Yeah, so we're not deplorable. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's, so it, it, um, it, it, it's sad when we we really think, I mean, it's not just it wasn't a slip of, uh, slip of the tongue. It was, I think, reflects the views, um, you know, one side or the other side is really deplorable. Um, I, I think it goes both ways, but it, it is a sad state of affairs. Yeah. Do you think it's more the insulation of, of Washington where, you know, or New York, because a lot of the media is centered in New York and a lot of uh, and the politics is centered in Washington. Those become bubbles in and of themselves. And if most people who are in the media in these areas are, are liberal because they're liberal areas anyway, that kind of reinforces, you know, things like you were saying earlier. And it would almost be worthwhile having the journalists take trips all around the country just to talk to regular folks, then go back to Washington and New York and do their reporting again. But it, are they just insulated, these places in in and of themselves. Yeah, I think everywhere is insulated. So you're talking about the sort of the Acela corridor, um, New York to, to Washington. Uh, sure, um, uh, um, but I think a lot of places are insulated, especially now that we get the, you know the media that we agree with. If you don't like, uh, you know, CNN, you can watch Fox. Um, uh, you know, and I don't know. It's just uh, uh, to your point about diversity, Greg. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it just trips out into the into Middle America that does it. I mean. Uh, um, you know, because in the end you come back and you're talking to people who still agree with you and still have the same perspective on things. Yeah. Really, you really do need to hire differently, think differently, diversify. Um, you know, diversify who's at the editorial table. Yeah, and one thing that uh, I love about uh, you know the conservative folks is that we have talk radio, and so you can come on here and we can talk about things, and we don't have to agree on everything, and that's okay. But I don't know if there's an equivalent. Uh, I mean, I can't call up, uh, you know, CNN or as I call it, the Creative News Network, and 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 say let's 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 talk about some of these issues and not be thought of as like we were saying before, the enemy or ignorant. You know, it's, it's either with enemy or stupid. And I think that's the perception that we feel from from the more the the you know Democrat left wing media. Yeah, yeah. So I can actually make a plug here for my alma mater, NPR, because that is, I guess, it is radio. So yeah. there is a. You know, mainstream radio, liberal radio, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. the labels that does a lot of talking, uh, a lot of callers listening. Um, I'm actually doing NPR. You know, I'm not very popular. I'm doing an NPR show later this week, um, 
uh, and I think that's to their credit. Um, but you're right. You know, the the way a lot of shows are set up now, it's either all one side or let's bring both sides in and shout at each other. Uh, and that's really not to the, I think, to the credit for, you know, it doesn't help our democracy. Well, this is why I don't like Fox News, um, because they, they set up these debates and nobody talks, you know, they're, they're, they're screaming over each other. I would not put, you know, a conservative media person and you on the same show just for that reason, because I want to I hear your story, I want to hear your information, and not have it be uh, a battle, because that doesn't help us either. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you completely. Yeah. Not the way to get great understanding. Well, thank you. I, I want to talk about NPR for a bit because one of the big uh, criticisms we have, and we talked about this Friday, uh, is that a government-sponsored radio network has an unfair advantage because you don't have to air the same commercials, you don't have to do what we have to do, and a lot of people listen to NPR because, oh, they say, oh I don't have as many commercials, but I'm thinking, that's how we have to stay in business. How can we make these more equal? Yeah, so... Uh uh, I don't know if it's good. I mean, so one of the things I think, so let's sort of speak about NPR, mm-hmm. which I've said, you know, criticisms of lately. But I, I think let's recognize that it does one thing, whether it's government support or not, that is we're badly in need of. As you know, being radio, Greg, you've seen the hollowing out of newsrooms around the country. Oh, yeah. Um, tens of thousands of local reporting jobs lost, um, you know, to uh, I think the value that NPR brings as the BBC does in England, is they really do invest, invest in reporters, reporters around the country telling real stories. Um, you can criticize them, and they should be subject to criticism, but it is doing something that you know commercial radio doesn't do anymore or doesn't do nearly as much as it used to. And that's you know, real journalism. And yeah, uh, there's a lot to criticize of the media. Frankly, I think that's, you know, they're bigger fish to fry than government funding these days. Yeah, uh, unless there was a way that we could get like an equivalent tax credit or benefit, you know, for whatever the funding is, if we could get the same amount, then maybe, you know, the local radios and the, the middle regional and the national radio could actually do more, you know, commercial radio could do more reporting and, and invest more in reporters. And you're know, like, I'm the news department for me. I mean, I'm it. <laughs> so, you know. And it's not right. So, you know, hey, there's a tax bill moving on in the, in the house right now. Maybe they can do something for uh, local media. Well, I have my uh, car going on tomorrow. So, uh, you know, it would be great to hear, and we'll, we'll talk about that. And, uh, yeah, so I'm just trying to have we covered all the, the places that you, that you went that you want to talk about, the, the racing and the church and everything like that, because we have tons more things. I want to get into some of the issues uh, and differences yeah, so, where we uh, – go ahead. So I, or, I organized thank, – thanks for asking, Greg. I organized the book around, you know uh, – um, issues that I thought I would be right on, um, uh, uh, recognizing that I didn't know that much about, like all of us, you know, your knowledge of issues um, can be pretty thin, mm-hmm. but you still think you're right. And so I wanted to challenge myself on gun control, and I went, went to gun shows, and I went to take hunting in Texas. Dr. Carlson said he'd take hunting in Texas. I went to, um, you know, I went on a tour of places I thought I would hate, like Liberty University and a huge evangelical uh, youth gathering of 15,000 kids in, in St. Louis. Um, and, you know, I found um, you know, a very different world than I imagined in all those places. And I went to Pikeville, Kentucky, Youngstown, Ohio, and spent time talking with people, you know, who are, you know, whose communities are on a 30-year losing streak, uh, jobs down, life expectancy down, uh, opioid addiction up. Uh, and you get a very different view of how to right the ship. Um, from those places, and it was an incredible, incredible experience for me. Wow. 
I want to talk about guns because there's a whole psychology of guns, you know, from the sec why we think that uh, liberal folks want to take our guns away, and we don't want to take, we don't want to force you to carry one. So we're thinking, why should you, you know, force us not to? So I want to talk about guns in a little bit, but mostly the psychology of it when we come back. My guest is Ken Stern, former CEO of uh, National Public Radio, and now has Palisades Media Ventures. Is his new company. We can talk about that too, and of course the book he wrote, Republican Like Me. And we'll be back in in just a little bit here on 1330 WEBY Northwest Florida's Talk Radio. Come together. Once again, A-Dog, the world's greatest producer, has the perfect song for our chat this morning with Ken Stern, former CEO of NPR, National Public Radio, and also um, with Palisades Media Ventures, which we'll probably talk a little bit about, too. So before we get into the great gun discussion, with all the things that you learned, and I asked you this Friday, and I uh, hope you had a chance to, to think about it, with everything that you learned in your year traveling around, what are you going to do with all this information now? So that's a great question. Um, uh I wrote a book, so that's a, that's a start. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a big thing. You know, I think um, uh, I'm going to keep writing and talking. I think that's the only thing that I, as a writer and a you know media guy, can really do, which is um, you know keep telling my story of uh, of uh, learning about the other side and discovering that we have a lot in common and I can agree with a lot of things that people tell me. Um, you know, I'm going to keep writing about that and talking to folks. I don't think there's an easy solution because. The way we've continued, we keep dividing ourselves up more and more. Um, uh, um, but we need more people who are willing to own up to the fact that look, we have more in common than we think we do, and if we talk, we'll find uh, lots of common ground. Yeah, we're all Americans, and this is yep. something that uh, that really disturbed me when I because I'm Canadian originally, and uh, when I came to this country, I'm looking around at, uh, at people already dividing themselves in groups. And this is back in the 70s, and this is one thing I really fault uh, President Obama for was was this whole group identity thing. You know, everything you're either African American or or uh, Jewish American or you are whatever it is your group is. You know, Native American. It doesn't matter, but you have to belong to a group. I'm thinking, wouldn't we just be better off if we just start stop talking about these things, you know, and just treat us all as individuals? You know, you are an American first, and everything else comes comes you know from that. I think that would yeah. go a long way to stop government stop grouping people by by groups, uh, media stop uh, having people in groups, and we just just stop talking about ourselves as the group you belong to, and just be the individual that you are. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it's um, uh, I spent a lot of time with the. Uh, social science um, around polarization as part of this book. And one of the studies that really I'll, I'll never sort of lose is um, more and more we don't want um, we don't want our kids to marry someone from the, who's associated with the other political party. Democrats don't want their daughters to marry Republicans and vice versa. And that is, you know, if, if we're getting that much uh, group identity and group homogenization, that's a very scary thing. Well, it's actually segregation. It's like I'm going to come up with a new term, political segregation. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, put that, and I do a lot of new terms. In fact, uh, the language is so key to this debate. Whoever came up with the term gun control, I hate them. <laughs> it really, it really it, it's so, you know, and I'm trying to find the equivalent. You know, like, for example, I never talk about you know, assault weapons because that's an inaccurate term. I always use freedom rifle. And so if you're, if you're asking you know, the question for the exact same AR-15, if someone says, why do you need an assault weapon? Or why do you need a freedom rifle? It's the same exact gun, but it's a totally different question. Yeah, that's right. And I think we, I mean, words, words matter. Uh, why I'm a writer and why I'm in media. Um, and they also <laughs> divide us. Yeah. So. 
Well, let's talk about guns for a bit because, you yeah. know, those of us, uh, you know, whenever there's a tragedy, there's a horrible shooting, whether it's Las Vegas or whether it's in Texas, you know, conservatives, gun owners, the, the first thing we're thinking is how long is it going to be before the first you know, a liberal member of Congress tries to take away our rights. It's almost like they're waiting for these things to happen. The media jumps on it, and they go all out. And, and for some reason, and our perception is, you know, you can't base individual rights on the actions of criminals, yet that's what we think is happening. Yeah, so it's, it's a complicated, like a lot of things, it's awfully complicated. I, I think, um, uh, you know, I started this journey off. I live in Washington, D.C. People... Mm -hmm with badges have guns and people without uh, don't, and that's sort of the way the world was structured. Um, uh, and, you know, I spent a lot of time, I went pig hunting to Gulf, Texas. It turns out to be about 10 miles from Sutherland Springs, mm -hmm. sort of a, oh, wow. uh, a point. Uh, um, uh, and, you know, I think, uh, it, and it was some time gun shows, I called up John Locke, the conservative economist who wrote More Guns, Less Crime, mm -hmm. um, and learned enormous about, about the challenges of gun control and gun rights, which has reshaped my thinking on it. Um, at the same time, I don't think as a public policy matter, you can look at what happens on Springs, what happens every day in Chicago, and not say, you know, we've got to figure out a way to do better. And that may not actually have to do with gun control. Uh, it may have to do with law enforcement. It may have to do with education. It may have to do with, you know, uh, projects like the um, pulling levers project in Boston, which drove down crime there. What's that? Um, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, so I'll just tell you, very briefly about that yeah. project, which was sometimes called the Boston Miracle, which is they figure out, so actually uh, some economists at Harvard figure out that you could actually isolate about 1,500 people in the city of Boston, uh, which all gun crimes were centered around. Um, and they developed an entire strategy around those 1,500 people. Uh, and some of that was incentives to you know, uh, um, access to education and other tools and helping them figure out. And also was also the notion like the police, police are going to be breathing down your neck uh, for the next decade, if you don't uh, figure it out, and you know, it had nothing to do with gun control or gun rights, but it drove down gun homicides in Boston by an enormous amount. Um, and we don't talk about those things. And to me, some of the, the issues around guns often miss the mark because of that. See, now that's a brilliant program because it deals with people, it deals with crime, and whether we approach this from a mental health angle uh, or a gang problem with, with, with drugs and everything else, which I think is going on in Chicago, it's a people issue, it's not a gun issue. And this is what drives you know, those of us, uh, you know, because every time it, something's reported, it, it almost has to fit the narrative. So they won't talk about the Boston program because it's related to people, because that doesn't advance the agenda uh, of gun control, gun confiscation, you know, completely repealing the, the Second Amendment, even though not actually doing it, but in law and everything else, you know, uh, making it so it really doesn't have any effect. And it's almost like we feel like they're waiting for this to happen. So it's better to report on the, on the tragedies for the agenda than it is to do something successful like this, which deals with behavior, but doesn't touch the right of, of law-abiding citizens to own guns. That's our problem. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think a lot of one is we like a neat solution. Um, and there's a neat solution that if, I mean, so let's, again, start off by recognizing we've got actually a horrible uh, crime problem. It's actually gone way down, yeah. which is also a big story. Um, homicides in this country are about half of what they used to be. Yeah. Um, but still, you know, it's still extraordinarily high. Um, and when we see a tragedy like Southern Springs or um, Las Vegas, we look for an easy solution. That is, you know, gun control. But it's, it's, none of this stuff is easy. Yeah. Let's, uh, this is one of my lay the cards on the table question. Why does the left want to take away 
our right to own guns, and we have no desire to force you to to own and carry them. We, you know, we, we just want to be left leave this right alone. Why is it so important to to the left to to try and take this right away? Yeah, I think look, I think it's it's a natural human uh, situation to look at um, tragedies of which there are far too many. So let's 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 recognize that and say mm-hmm. uh, and look at a causal relationship between guns and, and mass killings um, or the spread of handguns and crime in major cities. Yeah. Um, it, it is not, it, it's a natural thing to do. It's just, um, you know, the thing I learned, and I'm still, you know, I'm all for registration. I'm all for, you know, getting rid of uh, bump stocks and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, it, it's just what I've lost is the, is the view that that's going to actually really reduce crime. It's much harder to do that, um, and there are tools to do it, um, just more complicated, and no one likes a messy solution. Yeah, and I, I just give me one more point on this, then I want to move on. But see, I look at the Second Amendment as only applying to law-abiding citizens. It does not deal with crime. It does not deal with the use of firearms. So what I do is I distinguish between uh, the the right to own and carry, which I believe is absolute. You can own and carry firearms, and the government cannot touch that, as it says in the Second Amendment. You cannot infringe or even get to the outside fringe of that. However, the use of firearms, the government is perfectly within their power to to uh, di- to divide uses into legal uses and illegal uses. And as long as they focus on the illegal uses, I'm happy. Right. Make sense? Okay. I think just as a, as a now as sort of a uh, uh, semi-retired lawyer, um, you know, uh, most rights are not absolute. They're subject to reasonable government controls. Mm-hmm. That's true with virtually any right in the Bill of Rights. Um, you know, the question is, what are the sensible ways to to keep guns in the hands of people who are law-abiding? And you know, license holders, gun license holders, are actually an incredibly law-abiding group, mm-hmm. uh, and out of the hands of people who are going to do awful things with them. Um, I think that's a question for government. Yeah, someday I want to debate you on, uh, on the, I believe rights are absolute within the context of the right. I'll send you an article. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk about something else here. Um, another big thing is, is climate change uh, and the environment and coal in particular, I think, would make a good case study. Because you went to Ohio and Kentucky. and Were you in coal country at all? I was. I spent uh, time in Pikeville, Kentucky, which is in uh, the very edge of eastern Kentucky and the heart of uh, Eastern Kentucky coal country. And okay. I spent time with coal miners and more more frequently former coal miners who, you know, I think um, saw mining, coal mining as the you know, way towards a middle class existence, the only way towards a middle class existence for their, them, their families and their communities and were you know, deeply angered by the, you know, what they perceived as a war on coal. Exactly, and that's why I want to get into that. I should give the phone numbers again to 850-623-1330, 850-623-1330 if you want to get in on the conversation. And I always have the phone numbers on the WEBY Facebook page as well as online links, so you're always welcome to go there. I see coal as, like you're saying, there's the, the, the people that are actually in the, in the uh, business. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. It's been going on for generations. The folks that do this, I see as they're keeping the lights on in America. They're keeping industry going. They're contributing to our country. They're helping the economy. And I think they see the opposition to this, you know, especially during the Obama administration. You know, we're going to shut down the coal industry. Or the energy prices are going to skyrocket. It's contributing to global warming. It's killing the planet, you know, and we're all going to die of starvation. And there's two completely opposite views over this one industry. Yeah, so I think you get a very different view of Pikeville, uh, of climate change from Pikeville. Uh, not that the science is different, um, but notion of what you do. I mean, you have people in very 
traditionally very poor communities in which coal mining has given them some semblance of uh, of opportunity, and you know to see distant overlords in Washington D.C. and elsewhere shutting them down for this I mean, for a fairly tenuous link between what they're doing and you know and climate change, I think is quite galling. Um, uh, so I, I you know you get a very different read on people and why they're angry about uh, the Obama administration and the war on coal yeah. um, from that. Um, on the other hand, the one thing I would say is, um, truth of the matter is, the thing that's really driven, driven coal, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of companies out of coal business, is natural gas. Actually, not government intervention. It is the fracking revolution that has driven, you know, has increased natural gas in the country tenfold and made it a lot cheaper. Um, you know, and market forces are responsible for it, um, even if the uh, Obama administration would have done it by fiat if they could have. See, I didn't know that. That's good to know. And I think if more people knew that, I'll, I'll have to do some energy research now and, and check out and see how that happens. I also want to direct people to, you wrote a great article in the New York Post on October 21st uh, of this year. Former NPR CEO, that's you, opens up about liberal media bias. I posted this to our WEBY Facebook page, so if people want more information, that's a really great source of, of more detail. Um, anything more you want to cover on climate change? I have, I have more things to talk about, and we have to actually take a break in a minute. Nope, I'm good. Okay, let's come back and talk about immigration. Uh, 849 is the time, 1330 WEBY, Northwest Florida's Talk Radio. My very special guest, I'm having, I really am enjoying this. I'm having a good time here. Ken Stern, former president of NPR, uh, actually CEO of NPR, and uh, we're talking about uh, why liberals and conservatives have such problems communicating, and I'll be right back. I think I'm having a liberal moment here. I think we need a group hug. Can we do a radio hug? I told you I have the world's greatest producer, Ken. That's just how it works. It was a great, uh, great entry song. <laughs> We're having fun Love here. Uh, I just want to ask you, we have only a limited amount of time. Uh, any information you want to give, contact information, book information, book tour things, anything you do now you want to talk about? Sure. Uh, so my book is, uh, as you said earlier, uh, available on Amazon, uh, Republican Like Me, How I Left the Liberal Bubble and Learned to Love the Right. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at, uh, at 10 p Stern. There we go. Okay. I want to talk real quickly um, about my project, which is Action Radio, where I'm going to take talk radio and change it into a citizen legislature with the audience. And uh, the website's almost done. We have all these things going on. My goal, and this is something that you can really help me with if you're interested, um, is to I want to get to the White House and I want to broadcast uh, the four days after Christmas, the weekdays, and take bill ideas from around the country. But I also want Democrats contributing, you know, especially on things like free speech, you know, because uh, like the colleges are being restric restricted. But Democrats have traditionally been really big on, on free speech and ACLU and things like that. So if you're interested, uh, let me know. Yeah, it's a fabulous thing. Um, love it if you can pull that off. I'm going to try. I, just, I got the contacts. I'm working on it. But, uh, but we need to start talking to each other. And I think a citizen legislature would be a lot more effective than Congress. And, and as I say, you know, we the people you know, give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed. And this is a new principle I want to try and uh, bring about in this country. Great. Yeah. Let's talk about immigration. Why are you all trying to flood our country with illegal aliens? <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh... I don't even know how to answer questions, <laughs> especially coming from uh, from an immigrant. Come on, you're from Canada. I'm an immigrant, uh, but I'm a legal immigrant, and I have no problem with legal immigration. So, so it's really interesting. Uh, I, I will. So I, I won't answer your 
uh, heavily loaded question. Well, that's uh, why I asked it. I had to do uh, one. I won't even take ownership of you all. But <laughs> so just one of the interesting things is, you know, um, we, we don't have much of a sense of history in this country and how attitudes change. Actually, one of the things that's changed a lot over time is across the political spectrum, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot more uh, of greater belief over the last 20 years that immigrants bring value to this country. Um, it, you wouldn't think it by the diction of today, but it's actually fairly clear in the in the polling over time. Um, and, and I think uh, the, the thing that irritates me is you have to be either sort of pro-immigration or anti-immigration, and no one really should be either. Um, uh, they should be thinking about how best to bring new ideas and, and new blood legally into the country, because we need it, um, but also protect the people and the jobs of people already here. Um, it, it's not that complicated if you, if you try to uh, uh, solve the problem from that perspective. Interesting. And the conservative rebuttal would be, uh, in talking about immigration, the lines are being blurred because we see a very big distinction, especially those of us who came here as immigrants. And I have, I have callers that did the same thing. We are probably the most pro-legal, most anti-illegal immigration because we went through the process. We, we lined up. We waited. You know, we're the ones that took the exams and, and swore that we'd never be members of the Communist Party and wouldn't be uh, you know, a public charge and uh, you know, wouldn't uh, you know, do anything to overthrow the government, all this kind of stuff. And so we went through that process and swore before the judge and did the whole thing and to have people just walk into this country you know, with, with birthright citizenship, chain migration, things that I think are, are ruining this country. And it, it's almost like the, the fundamental trans, uh, transformation that President Obama talked about. If you get enough people from other countries who don't understand our constitution, our history, and things like that, the country is going to be watered down and, and completely changed. And the conservative contention is that the Democrats want to flood the country with immigrants uh, who are dependent on government and then will vote for Democrats. Yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting issue. Um, uh, and there's a lot to be said about it. Um, you know, the, um, you know, people have said, you know, immigrants for, for hundreds of 50 years, you know, the, the Irish said it about the Italians, the Italians said it about the Irish, that they don't have the right values and they're going to water it out of the country. And it's not true. I mean, people, uh, uh, immigrants tend to assimilate uh, and tend to add entrepreneurship and innovation to a country, um, which often needs it. It's actually one of the great reasons we're, one of the reasons we're a great country, because we're a nation of immigrants. Um, uh, um, but I'm with you on the sort of the, the notion of um, we should have an immigration system that is legal and makes sense. Um, uh, you know, we've only had this sort of notion of family reunification for since the 60s. Um, yeah. uh, there's probably a different system that some people are talking about that makes sense more in terms of driving the skill sets that we need for this economy of the future and protecting the livelihoods of people already here. Um, but, um, you know, so I'm actually very pro-immigration. Um, but the right kind of immigration, and I think... See, we did agree on something. Most people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we only have a few seconds left, actually about 30. So uh, anything you want to say in conclusion? First of all, thank you so much for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. No, it's not so. First of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, it was a great conversation, and I love the fact that um, you're doing what um, you know this country needs, which is having people from different backgrounds and perspective talking. It's, we'll find that we agree on a lot more than we think we do. And that's the um, most, that's the most important know, lesson right the, there. It's a challenge, and you know, now if um, Thanksgiving you're sitting aside across from, you know, your crazy uncle. Action Radio, dedicated to fixing everything. Meanwhile, back in present day. 
it's really interesting how nobody has a concept. When I say I have 30 seconds left, I really mean 30 seconds. <laughs> That's it. Uh, that was back at um, you know, WBY. But what's interesting now is with Blog Talk, I, I don't have that restriction. I mean, we had there what you call hard breaks. I mean, they were contracted. They had news breaks. They had advertising. They had things that had to be done by a certain time. And we had these little segments. You know, and when I think about it, uh, the, my typical interview from WBY was about 43 minutes. So sometimes 44, sometimes 42. It was about 43 minutes on average. Okay, so less than 45 minutes, which means the rest of the time was, you know, junk. It was <laughs> stuff, with advertising, news breaks, useless stuff like that. So my interviews now that are an hour, I'm actually getting, you know, 17 minutes more in of actual interview because I, I you know, I try, uh, unless there's a reason like they got cut off or something like that, I don't interrupt people for an hour, you know, sometimes two hours. We had Jonathan on for two hours on Monday. That was an incredible show. If you missed Monday's show, oh my God, uh, we had Jessica Rivera and we talked about uh, Tafari Campbell, uh, Obama's chef, uh, who mysteriously drowned in eight feet of water when he swam pretty well while, you know, Attached, you know, while right next to a, a paddleboard that floats. <laughs> that to me seems a little incongruous. You could have hopped on the board and paddled to shore, you know, or at least paddled to where it was only five feet deep and stood up <laughs> and walked the rest of the way. So that doesn't make any sense. Apparently, uh, Bill Clinton's chef died too. You know, isn't that interesting? So I don't know what it is about uh, people who work as chefs for Democrats because probably a little bit too much candle, but uh, they, they died. So that was interesting. But Jonathan went over some incredible things um, talking about. The, the January 6th, and the, uh, apparently he's on, on, uh, on a, a chat, a live chat with the defense attorneys and, who are defending the January 6th people, and some of them are just total idiots. They're completely incompetent. They're letting the, the judges and the uh, prosecutors uh, break the law. I mean, they're, they're breaking the law anyway, so a lot of prosecutors, a lot of defense attorneys are trying not to let them break the law, and they're doing it anyway, but at least that's something. You know, compared to uh, those grounds for appeal, much more so than a, a defense attorney says, oh, yeah, OK, no problem. Yeah, I guess they were insurrectionists. You know, and it, one of the things that came out was that most uh, defense attorneys believe their clients are guilty, but they, they defend them anyway. Well, that's a lot different than, you know, and a lot of the defense, a lot of the public defenders of the January 6th people believe that the, the defendants really were involved in some kind of insurrection, which, of course, is impossible. You know, you don't take over a government with cell phones without a plan, uh, especially when you're being invited in and they open the doors for you. OK. So the doors were open for the January 6th. They were there to help the coup, not to cause the coup. <laughs> they were there to help the coup. Uh, in other words, they were there as patsies. They were there as entrapped people. Uh, so it's very different. Anyway, it's interesting listening to myself back in 2017. Uh, and I, keep, I almost like scream at my own you know, radio program because there's a lot of things I would have said. You know, he said that, uh, you know, I said the legal aliens, you know, water down the citizenship and you have people here that don't believe in this country. He says, well, you know, the Irish thought that of the Italians, the Italians, they thought they were watered down, too. It's like that's a totally different uh, situation because the Italians and the Irish came here to be Americans. The illegal aliens come here to, to keep their citizenship in their country. They just want the money, you know, they, they, and they want to send it home. So they're there to help their families back home. They're here to uh, to take whatever they can. They're not here to become Americans. If they were here to become Americans, they would have gone through the legal immigration process. The fact that they came here without the legal immigration process means they have no interest in becoming Americans. That is completely different than people that are here as lawful immigrants. So you can't equate the two. You know, the gun, uh, gun thing, same thing. When you said that, well, we have to, the Second Amendment, uh, rights are, are not absolute. We have to, uh, you know, we've had these horrible gun tragedies where people do mass public shootings. Well, the Second Amendment and mass public sh shootings have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Any more than bank robbers and bank depositors. <laughs> you know, they have nothing to do with each other. People who rob banks are criminals. People who uh, you know, deposit money in a bank are basically exercising the services of the bank. You cannot you know, say they're the same thing. So the idea that rights can be restricted, no, you don't restrict rights. You restrict actions. 
St. Marcos is, is you can see that in Europe. They come into the country in Spain or Italy down, down the south. Yeah, well, especially the, the Muslims who are coming in. So why would Muslims go into a Christian country if not to make that country Muslim? Now, if, they came into a, now, if Muslims wanted to come into a Christian country, they should renounce uh, Islam and say, you know what? I'm not, going to be, uh, I'm not going to bring in Sharia law. I'm not going to uh, you know, abide by this as a Christian country. And so I will practice my, my Muslim faith privately, and I won't bring it into you know, whatever. I will assimilate into the Christian culture. If they did that, that's okay. But they don't do that. Then it says, uh, but most refugees move further north to countries where socialist payments are higher. That's absolutely true. Yeah, people go where the money is. So, so, is the, so the invaders that are coming into Europe, they're not going into Eastern Europe. I, I mean, how many people are, are running into Romania or Bulgaria? Uh, I don't know how, how they're doing, um, but the Eastern European countries, you know, I don't think they're off as well off as the Western European countries yet, simply because the Eastern European countries only got independence from Russia uh, in the 80s, you know, when uh, Glasnost and Perestroika, when the Soviet Union collapsed. So they've only been working since the 80s, whereas uh, uh, Western Europe has been building their fortune since the end of World War II. Uh, it's a different situation. They got like a, you know, 40-year head start. So very interesting, very, very different situations. But yeah, why would you let people into your country who do not want to become part of your country? So in other words, the United States doesn't mean, you know, we don't want just let in Christians. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is someone of a, of a faith uh, comes into the country and wants to bring not only the faith, but the laws of their faith. In other words, Sharia law. Now, this is America. We don't have Sharia law. You're not going to come here and try and, and change our country and our culture and our laws like that. Now, if a country has, has better laws, more free laws, as is in our country, we, we have this and this is a better system. Oh, that's different. That's a whole different thing. But if you come in here with, with more restrictive, with a theocracy, and you say that uh, the United States is, uh, uh, there are infidels, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and anybody who doesn't convert to Islam should be killed, yeah, that's not what I would call a, a, a good immigrant for our country because they're not going to be any, uh, any use to us. There'll be nothing but problems. And people who are going to be problems, we don't want. And if you're going to be problems, stay out. So that's, that's how that works. Anyway, uh, but that's something that was very interesting. Again, the gun issue, too. So the Second Amendment, all rights are absolute. Let me say that again. All rights are absolute. One more time. All rights are absolute. Well, gee, Greg, how can you say that? What about, uh, you know, uh, using guns in a crime? Well, that's using guns. See, a right has nothing to do with use. This is what people forget, okay? Those are actions. So in other words, the right of free speech is absolute. But once you speak, you're taking an action, and that's different, okay? Let me explain the difference. Rights are, well, the Constitution. When the Constitution lists the Bill of Rights, those are prohibitions on government, those prohibitions are absolute. The government is absolutely prohibited from touching your right to own and carry firearms. That's an absolute. The government is absolutely prohibited from infringing, from uh, blocking, making a law against your right of free speech. So the right is a limitation of government. Well, actually, the, the prohibition is a prohibition on government. People have nothing to do with it. I you know, don't own guns because the Second Amendment says I can. I own guns because it's a natural right of free people. But the government cannot touch my individual God-given right to own guns because of the Second Amendment, which is a prohibition on government. And that, that prohibition is absolute. So if you can separate the Constitution where rights are absolute prohibitions on government, but people's actions are covered by statutory law, you can see the difference. So does a mass public shooting have anything to do with the Second Amendment? No. It has to do with the person who used guns illegally, and the key word is use. 
So once you get into the use of guns, now you're in statutory law. And there are legal uses of guns and there are illegal uses of guns. Self-defense, hunting, target shooting, collecting, blacksmithing, uh, gunsmithing, you know, uh, competition, all that stuff is legal use of guns. Illegal uses of guns, brandishing, carjacking, kidnapping, extortion, murder, you know, uh, all those things. Those are, you know, bank robbery. Those are illegal uses of guns. Okay. But not neither the legal uses of guns nor the illegal uses of guns have anything to do with the Second Amendment because the Second Amendment is a prohibition on government touching your right to own and carry guns. So you can own and carry guns. How you use those guns that you're owning and carrying is where the difference comes in. So the Second Amendment leaves you the prohibition of government ends when you do anything but own and carry. So the minute you go for use, the minute you, you, you pull that gun, that touch that gun in that holster, now you're in use. And the Second Amendment does not cover you. As long as you're owning and carrying, even in your arms. I mean, if you're carrying a gun in your, in your hands, that's okay too because that's still – you haven't used it yet. <laughs> you know, but if you raise it up and pull the trigger – yeah, or, or cock the hammer, uh, that's use, okay? So there's a line between, uh, and that's the difference. That, that, that's, the, that's the clear difference. All right, let's totally change subjects here. Let's, uh, let's Marco has a question. Um, surprise, Pianchi hasn't called it. You know, uh, he's not even on the live chat, so the man must be busy. All right, totally different change of subjects. Let me note the time here, 9-12, 9-12. And we're going to get into uh, intellectual takeout. Did lockdowns finish off public schooling? I find this interesting because government schools made a permanent change after the COVID lockdowns, which were, of course, illegal and unconstitutional and had no business happening because you don't lock down healthy people. Okay, so everything that happened during COVID was illegal and everything that happened during COVID prolonged COVID, saved COVID. The whole purpose of lockdowns, masks and, and all the restrictions was to preserve COVID, to create fear, to lower immune systems so that COVID would still be around when the, the, the dreaded COVID shot came out. Uh, and people would willingly accept it because they were too terrified not to, okay? However, had we let the natural course of COVID go, COVID really ended mid-July of 2020, you know, months before the December rollout of the messenger RNA COVID jab. And so the COVID jab was completely unnecessary. It should have canceled the program in August. should have canceled the whole vaccine program. would have saved trillions of dollars because it wasn't needed. COVID was already done. You know, the death rate started in January, peaked in April, uh, April 15th, tax day. And by mid-July, the COVID rate was, the death rate was pretty much zero. And that's on the CDC's own chart. Look at any broadcast page, any broadcast page of the show. I've got the CDC chart. Started in January, peaked April 15th, and was, was pretty much zero by, uh, July, uh, by July 15th, by mid-July. You know, CDC's own figures. All right, back to the article. Intellectual takeout. Did lockdowns finish off public schools? And this is by Charles... Kerbich, Kerbich, K-R-B-L-I-L, Kerblich, Kerblich, K-R-B-L-I-C-H. It's written in very tiny letters, so you'll have to read it for yourself. September 28th of this year. I sound like Mark Davis. And now we present. <laughs> anyway, Charles Kerblich, K-R-B-L-I-C-H, says, we moved to a good school district. The area was growing, built for families like ours. All of the public schools in the area received an A or 8 out of 10 rating. There were, two, there were two very expensive and very fancy private schools in the area. It was an idyllic place, idyllic place to raise children. In retrospect, we had a few frustrations with the public schools. Some of the curriculum seemed ridiculous, the math in particular. The apps used to communicate with the teachers were barely functional. It was somewhat difficult to track what the kids were learning, uh, but the teachers had no complaints, so we didn't make any either. In March 2020, the world changed. Yeah, for the worst. 
The entire school experience became a series of apps on a screen. Classes met daily in the morning on Zoom. All of the curriculum was hastily added to the schoolology. Is that a word? During the initial two-week lockdown. I still want to call it schoolology. <laughs> That's funny. We became intimate partners with the printer and scanner. There, They were necessary to scan and up uh, completed assignments. The initial two-week closure was extended to the end of April. Within one month of school after that, the district remained uh, shuttered uh, for the rest of that year. School would remain uh, a computer screen. Yeah, see, that's when they should have, done, should have shut down the entire public school system. Summertime. Government schools are all closed, right? Summer of 2020. I was saying, shut them all down. Sell the buildings. Sell them to private schools. Shut down the entire government school system right now. They're all closed. The teachers are all gone. The administrators are on vacation. Shut it down. Nobody listened. Oh, well. Window of opportunity. I told you. <clears throat> Back to the article. There was a tremendous amount of uncertainty. We didn't know how the grades would work. We didn't know when the school would reopen. We didn't quite understand how to find the complete uh, and complete the assignments. The assignments were exceptionally basic and shoddily organized. We were skeptical that we were uploading them correctly. We were not teachers. We did not expect to be teachers. We had full-time jobs. Yeah, you know what? Parents are teachers. Uh, parents are the first teachers and the best teachers. That's just how it works. The other teachers are hired by the parents to uh, do things that they don't have time to do because they're working. Back to the article. My experience with Zoom school <laughs> was so utterly terrible that I was convinced the children had to be back in school. We lived in Florida, and we were lucky the schools reopened in August the next year. Oh, yeah. Remember uh, DeSantis says he, doesn't, he didn't lock anything down? I got news for you. He locked everything down. All right. Dictator DeSantis, as I called him in an open letter, locked everything down. Don't think for a second that DeSantis didn't follow all these illegal mandates along with the other governors. He did. Now, he wised up sooner, and he opened things up. But he was just as restrictive as Witch Widmer in Michigan and Gavin Newsom in California and Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo in New York. He was just as restrictive as they were at first. Then he wised up and opened up. You know, if he had an intimate knowledge of the Constitution, which is kind of interesting being a lawyer and a, and a judge, judge in general, a JAG officer in the military, that he should have known that intrinsically, intuitively. But he didn't. That in itself is interesting and grounds for consideration for a president. <clears throat> I like him as governor. Stay as governor. You know, you, you did, you know, you've learned your lesson. You'll never lock down again. At least I hope not. So, you know, you learned. Why you didn't know it ahead of time is what I'm worried about. All right. So it says, we lived in Florida and we were lucky the schools reopened in August the next year. <laughs> our governor had to fight our district to open. Striking back, the district delayed the opening as long as legally possible. See, that's another thing, too. So the, so the governor opened the schools and the school said, no, we're not going to open. Uh, your government schools, you don't have a choice. You have to open. The governor says you open, you open. Okay? That's kind of how it works. Um, but they didn't want to do that because they were liberals, right? They didn't want to open. Was the, oh, it was unsafe. The, the, the school kids might give the, the teachers COVID and they all drop dead. No. School kids aren't really affected by COVID. Anyway, it says, to my great regret, the strength of my belief led me to send my children into a classroom that had plastic dividers between the desks and masks covering all their faces. That's a crime. Okay? That is a real crime. It says, I was still naive enough to believe that people wanted this over as soon as possible and would act rationally. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> I was already wrong, but I couldn't see it yet. The few pleas for normalcy, normalcy fell on the deaf ears of our school board. I could not understand it. <laughs> I could. We talked about it. But they seemed to actually enjoy it. <laughs> no kidding. Power. All power corrupts. All power is also very enjoyable to those exercising it. Right? Let's, we'll add that to the phrase. Then he says, every time a mandate could be extended, it was. Oh, even though they were illegal, right? 
Despite strong opposition, the decisions were often unanimous. Of course they were. All power, uh, power loves more power. You know, people who want power exercise power together, right? Then he says, our governor, that would be DeSantis, DeSantis, removed all of the statewide mandates in September 2020. Jeez, that was late. But allowed the schools to enforce their own for a time being. Jeez, that was a mistake. (laughs) The school board promised dropping the mandates after the Christmas break. I suppose that was reasonable and I accepted it. We returned in January to the same restrictions. Gee, how about that? Government loves power. Restrictions are power. Therefore, government loves restrictions. And that's a basic, that, that's a logical proof for you. If A is true and B is true, then C is true if it comes from A and B. Okay? Government loves power. Government loves restrictions. Therefore, government loves, loves power and restrictions. All right. So what is it? Government loves power. Restrictions are power. Therefore, government loves restrictions. There we go. That's the proof. Then it says, our governor removed all of the statewide mandates in September. I think I read that. The board meetings blew up at this point. Well, of course, because they lied. <laughs> the dishonesty of the board and the frustrations of the parents were a volatile mix. Their authority and character impugned. The board doubled down and continued the restrictions to the end of the school year, even though that was illegal. The illegal mandates were illegally continued for an illegal length of time. Let me sum it up that way. Article says, I finally accepted reality. I spoke with the founder of an umbrella school, a way of homeschooling. Well, that's interesting. She was fabulous. She had homeschooled her own children and was a respectable uh, psychologist. During our brief conversation, she convinced me that do- Zoom school was not homeschool. Let me say that again. Zoom school is not homeschool. And that I should reconsider my opinions. However, unfortunately, we both concluded removing my kids from school so late in the year would not work well. I had waited too long. <laughs> Never send your kids to government school. Then you don't have to worry about it, right? He says, my children finished out that year. This is Charles Kerbalik. My my children finished out that year. The school board voted unanimously to remove all mandates for the next school year. We traveled that summer. We rented an RV. An old man I play cello with told me I should write a travel blog. I did. We were refreshed. The long ordeal was over. (laughs) In the first week of the new school year, during school drop-off, an emergency meeting was called. Parents could not attend. They were busy dropping off the kids off at the school. And in a 3-2 vote, the school board reverted, reverted their stance. I should say reversed their stance on mandatory masking. Masking and even the dividers would return. See? Power. Once power is uh, taken, it, uh, you have to force it away. He says, I immediately called the umbrella school, and Friday of that week was the end of our time in public school. See, there you go. That's always the solution. The solution to government school is to not be in government school, Right? He says, I will never send my children back to publicly run schools. For the second time, unexpectedly, I was a homeschool parent. There you go. Shouldn't be unexpected. What's wrong with private schools? Why don't you send your kid to private schools? See, this is where school choice comes in. So parents, most parents, middle-income parents, cannot afford to pay school taxes for government schools and pay an additional double that uh, or, or pay just as much again to private schools to educate their kids. So the solution is very simple, that you have school choice. So the money that uh, parents are, are paying in taxes to government schools they get to take to a private school. That's how it should work. Why should you pay twice? Why should people, that, that, that's unconstitutional in the 14th Amendment, that people who are taxed for government schools, you know, can't use that money for private schools. That's unconstitutional. You get the equal protection of the laws. So in other words, why should people pay twice as much for public schools to pay for government school? Why should they pay for, for government school and private school if their choice is private school? That's unconstitutional. And yet it happens, right? Well, we got to support our public schools. Why? They suck. Why would you support something that sucks? And if you don't think it sucks, that's okay, but you should pay for it out of your taxes. In fact, people who pay taxes for education uh, who don't have kids in school, they should get vouchers too. 
and donate to the school of their choice, private school, homeschool, whatever. doesn't matter. You know, they should be able to donate to their friends. Hey, I'm educating my kids. Can, you, can I have your voucher? Oh, yeah, sure. I don't need it. Okay, fine. Hmm. The homeschool, back to the article, the homeschool curriculum was marvelous. The books on history and science were what I remember from school. That was back when school was actually school, not an indoctrination center. He said the readers had heroic stories with moral themes in them. Well, can't have that today. The math book was the best I have ever seen. The English book included sentence diagramming that I had to relearn myself. Well, there you go. There was handwriting, cursive, art, and long-form creative writing. As we worked through the homeschool curriculum, I realized several things. My children had never brought home a textbook. There were no chapter assignments to read for history or science. What had come from the public school was usually a single worksheet of some kind. The topic had to be addressed on the front and some questions on the back and then immediately forgotten in favor of the next worksheet. That's for sure. My children struggled. My oldest, who was in fourth grade, had no understanding of phonics. Phonics were taught in the year interrupted by Zoom school. Writing a full sentence was difficult. He could not describe what a verb or a noun was. He didn't even know the vowels. He had passed every grade in public school without incident. See? Public schools don't teach. In fact, they actually unlearn. So you go to school to un- you go to government school to unlearn. You go to private school to learn, but you go to government school to unlearn. They take whatever knowledge you have and destroy it. Okay, so you come out an idiot. Well, that's because that's what the government wants. Government wants idiots. So the purpose of going to school is to is to turn your kid into an idiot. And if you go to a college, you, you become a liberal idiot. You become a Marxist idiot, susceptible to all kinds of stupid propaganda. So I don't know. I'm, this is why I would take all the money out of out of uh, colleges. No taxpayer money should go to colleges. They should be independent businesses. Now, if you want to have a voucher program, you might think about that, but it's not necessary. You can work your way, work your way through school. If we took all the money out of private colleges, they would be forced to compete for students. Their fees would drop to probably a quarter to a third of what they are now. That'd be affordable. And for those that couldn't afford them, they could offer their own student loans within the school. And I'll tell you, they would enforce it. They wouldn't let you off. If you borrowed money from a college to go there, they would enforce it. They would make sure they collected on that student loan. Otherwise, they lose money. It's very simple. <sighs> Back to the article. Reading a section of a chapter several pages in length was difficult for both of my kids. Answering the questions at the end of the section by flipping back through the chapter was impossible. We worked very hard those first two months. But an interesting thing happened. They knew they were learning, and they did the work. See, kids will do this other thing, too. Kids will do the work if they know they're learning. Kids aren't stupid. They want to learn. It's natural for kids to learn. But if they're put in an environment where they can't learn because they have a government school indoctrination program designed to make them stupid, they're going to rebel. They're not going to do the work. Very simple. I had an experiment in uh, school when I was in Australia. It was fifth grade or sixth grade. I'm in sixth grade. And the teachers decided. There are two teachers. Uh, (laughs) Remember the name, Mr. Conley and Mr. Hunter. Those are my teachers in, uh, in middle school in Australia. And this is back in 1971. 71? Maybe 72. Anyway, long time ago. So I don't even know if they're still alive. They might not be. This, uh, they'd, be they'd be old now. Anyway, maybe I should look them up. That'd be interesting. I'll, I'll go to Facebook. So these were two dynamite teachers. They were both really interesting uh, uh, men. And it was all boys' school. So all the teachers were men. And all, all the students were boys. It was a single-sex environment. And we all did well. So what happened was they decided one semester to let us learn on our own. And they had, uh, it was kind of like a homeschool program. And you had a series of assignments and you charted your course as to whether you, and you had to pass the assignments, you know, you had to pass these tests. So you couldn't just, you know, fudge your way through it. You actually had to do the work. Um, and so they had uh, this board and they had check, uh, they had uh, squares that you filled in. 
when you complete an assignment. And working at my own pace, I did a semester's worth of work in about three weeks. <laughs> that was done. I spent the rest of the time playing chess and Monopoly and things like that. Uh, it turned out most of the class was done with a semester's worth of work within half the semester's time, which proves the potential of school is far greater than, uh, than students are given credit for. The biggest problem with, with government schools is that they're boring. The teachers are boring. The subjects are boring. The textbooks are boring. You should never use a textbook. Don't use a textbook. Use a book. Not a porno book either. I mean, so, so not only boring, they have drag queens. I mean, I'm sure the drag queens actually break up the, monopoly, the monotony of school, even though they're horrible for, for young kids. But the biggest problem with school is they bore you to death. They take away knowledge uh, by making it boring. They take away uh, your curiosity by, by stifling it. They take away your, your creativity by not letting you have any. That's what schools do. So government schools are horrible places to send kids. It's, it's almost like a, uh, a gulag. So it's the modern equivalent of the gulag. Nothing happens that's exciting. You don't learn anything. You're just warehoused until you graduate, and you're unlearned. You're indoctrinated and unlearned. So maybe we should start calling that the, the public school gulag, you know, the public school concentration camp, because it's pretty much what they become. And so the only choice for parents is good private schools or homeschools, because the government schools suck. Now, government schools have one thing they do well, band, orchestra, um, art, and sports teams. So if, if the government schools want to do that and nothing else, that's okay. But the classes should not be done in school. But if you want to, if you want to quote, socialize the kids so they get to do fun things, then what you need are, are centers that the, the, in fact, maybe uh, uh, these towns would set up a, a situation where uh, they, they uh, fund, actually publicly fund, you know, things like a town band for kids, uh, a town orchestra for kids. Uh, a town theater group for kids and have a, have a theater production place. You know, like in, in Milton, we'd have the Imogene Theater. seats about 300 people. That would be the perfect place for any high school kid in Santa Rosa County to perform. Marching bands perform at football games. You know, concert bands could perform at the Imogene Theater. I'm sure your town has a movie theater where you could set up the band, you know, on the stage. Most theaters have stages. Maybe now. So there are ways around this. There are ways around all this stuff. It's actually not that hard to do. All right, let me get back to the article here. Uh, see if Marco has any comments that I wasn't uh, catching. Okay, good. Uh, okay, there we go. Back to the article. I kept a log of how many pages they read each week. I, oh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so, so the experiment, let me just get back to that and finish that. So the experiment in Australia in sixth grade of letting us work at our own pace, uh, we got through the work in easily 25 to 50% of the time. Given to com- This is a semester's worth of work. They figured it would take us a whole semester to complete this work because that's what the program said. This is a semester's worth of work. And I had done about three weeks and everybody else within six and, you know, um, yeah, everybody else was done within, uh, within six weeks. Semester's 12 weeks long, right? Half a year. I think that's how it works. 24 weeks. Uh, okay, fine. Whatever it was, I took 25%. And I wasn't the only one. The other kids were done even faster than me. And I was good, but I wasn't the best. Some kids were done in two weeks. I think I took three, uh, and most kids were almost everybody was done within six weeks, and we still had uh, it was only halfway through the semester. Okay, <laughs> back to the article. I kept a log of how many pages they read each week. I paid them for each page and for good grades at the end of the week. Well, that's interesting. That that's that's bribery, but anyway. By the end of the year, my fourth grader had read two twenty three hundred pages. My second grader sixteen hundred. It was all done in less than four hours a day. We were, yeah, you can usually, you can, do, you can do a lot more. Homeschools don't spend eight hours teaching because they don't waste time, right? Four hours is plenty. 
it was all done in less than four hours each day. We were usually done by lunch when I went to work at my full-time job. That caliber of work cannot occur in the public schools. Yeah. So what you should do is homeschool in the morning and send kids to the, the government schools for band, orchestra, theater, drama, chess club, you know, debating society, the group activities. That's the, so if you turn homeschool into the classroom in the morning and after lunch, you go do group activities in the afternoon, that might be a nice balance. That'd be a good, that'd be a good project. I should uh, uh, talk to some folks about that. Anyway, since they began to have interesting conversations at swim class, they were, oh yeah, swimming is another good thing. At swim class, they were doing uh, chin-ups uh, on the starting block. The instructor asked them if they knew the name of the muscle they were using. My eldest, who had anatomy as part of a science program, blurted out, bicep. The instructor was speechless. They had instructed for years, and none of the kids had known the answer. Well, that's because they didn't go to homeschool. A funny anecdote in writing a letter to one of my son's friends. We addressed it, Master R. We mailed it. We we expected to receive a letter, uh, respected the letter in return, and I envisioned an old-fashioned pen pal relationship blooming. We earned a text message in return. (laughs) After our year of homeschooling, we decided to send them to a private charter school. There you go. It is a fair mix between the public and private systems. Yeah, I don't know about that. The school has made an effort to ensure we are aware of all of the curriculum and can follow the progress of our children. It is quite similar to the schooling I remember. We have been happy with it so far. We are also ready to immediately drop everything and return to homeschooling should insanity roar back. Is I don't think the public schools can be fixed. Yeah, I agree. The bureaucracy is overcrowded. Union control is absolute. Awful ideas abound about everything. There is a tendency to rely on technology rather than the time-tested fundamentals as the preferred solution to any problem. As a result, the amount of technology is overwhelming. The amount of basic reading, writing, and arithmetic vastly underwhelming. The teachers are handcuffed. Details down to the placement of desks in their classrooms have an official policy. Our district had circular tables. Several of the kids always had their backs turned to the whiteboards. In order to take notes, they had to turn around and had no surface to run. Oh, that's great. So the kids that are facing the board get a good education. The kids that are not get no education. Hmm. Interesting concept. Article says, nominally nonpartisan, the boards are thoroughly politicized. Their seats are filled with many very unserious people. Well, I would just call them Marxists, right? Reformative voices are quickly silenced and the unions quick to exile them. So that's nothing with private schools. You don't have unions. <laughs> okay. Homeschools, you don't have unions. You want to destroy the teachers' unions? Private schools and homeschools. Very simple. I'm not, I'm not against unions. I'm all for private unions. Teamsters, you know, AFL-CIO, no problem. That's adults who are trying to get a better contract and a better work situation for themselves using a union just the way management uses the corporation. No problem. Teachers unions, any union that works with government, no. Those should be illegal because teachers unions influence government policy uh, in a way that far exceeds their numbers because the teachers union is bribed by the government with great contracts and great power so the union members will vote for the government, usually Democrats. That kind of situation creates an unfair competitive advantage and allows government unions to have way more power than they should, which is why they shouldn't exist. All right. Back to the article. The idea that school was optional and could be shuttered and reopened at will without harm was always laughable. The data show that chronic absenteeism is worse in states that close schools longer. Brown University shows that learning loss was greater in districts where the schools were closed the longest. The passing rates in math were significantly lower. 
The people in charge who care so very much about your children declared classrooms unsafe, even though kids didn't get COVID, right? Normally healthy kids, the incidence of COVID was minuscule, 0.001%, some ridiculously low number. More kids had colds and flu than had COVID. Anyway, that's another story. Since the people in charge who care so very much about your children declared classrooms unsafe and left them to take selfies on a beach vacation or send their children to private school. Uh, as infuriating as that is, it should not be viewed as hypocrisy. It is hierarchy. So that's what happened. So the teachers, the public school teachers, send their kids to private schools. In fact, most public school teachers send their kids to private schools anyway because they know the public schools suck. What does that tell you? Article says, if one reads old novels, you'll eventually come across a character like Jane Eyre. It is easy to daydream nostalgically. Was it better back then? <laughs> now, they didn't have Novocaine for dentists. No, it wasn't better back then. Anyway, the ideal of the little single-room schoolhouse. Actually, single-room schoolhouses were better because you had kids of different ages and different learning abilities, and the older kids taught the younger kids. And as I said in my, uh, my seven-part series on uh, a completely new model for education, that one of the best things you can have is older kids teaching younger kids because the, the greatest demonstration of you learning something is that you can successfully teach it. Flight instruction proved that to me. I was not a good flight instructor, you know, until I could teach students properly. That's when I knew I, I knew the material because they understood what I was teaching and it worked. That's your test. So the test of whether a student has learned something is whether they can teach it to another student. Wouldn't that be interesting? Back to the article. A single headmistress, talking about the one-room schoolhouse, with living quarters in the back, charged with educating a mixed range of ages and abilities. Yet despite the rusticism and lack of technology, the students and teachers could speak several languages, quote and read the classics, take hardship in stride, and were unfailing, unfailingly civil and polite. Ideal indeed. Idle. Yeah, there we go. See how the one-room schoolhouse worked. No technology, you know, far better than, uh, than a modern factory school with bells and you know, cells that people go from place to place in conditioning, you know, basically a, um, a factory, a student, you know, a young person factory. Article says, my two semesters as the parent, uh, as the parent principal educated me in the realities of the public school system. Let me say that again. My two semesters as the parent principal educated me, you should put a comment in there, <laughs> in the realities of the public school system. It taught me that proper schooling can make the spirits of our children flourish and bloom. It's true. I learned more on my own than I ever learned at school. My own research, reading encyclopedias, looking up things on the internet when that was created, I learned far more than I ever learned at school. And I learned some good things in school. I had five good teachers, I think, from first grade through college graduation. There's like five teachers that really taught me. Article concludes that blossoming intellectual development we all desire for our children is absolutely within reach when we only allow the freedom for it to occur. Oh, it's from the Brownstone Institute, this article, where it first appeared. I'll have to go back. Brownstone Institute has some good stuff. Let me uh, try one more article. Uh, I'm going to take a break here. I've got to find it. That's a cool article. I'm going to post that on Facebook, too. So it is now, we've got a little bit of time left on the show, 8, 9.38, just a bit. So 19, 12, intellectual takeout. Let's take a little break here. 9.38. I'll come back with one more article. Uh, from Brownson Institute, and that should pretty much do it for today. I don't have that much left to play, so let's go with, let's go back at the top here, and start here. This is one with the five-second delay, so it always takes a bit to get going, but uh, if you want to help us out, this is how. 
Here at Action Radio, we are looking for sponsors. We have 30 and 60 second spots available for your announcements. And we have three minute live call-ins to talk about your products and services available. Action Radio is the next evolution beyond talk radio. Join us and let us help your business evolve. Think about being a sponsor of the future and not just a listener and help us help your business grow as you help us plunge headlong into breaking new ground here on Action Radio every day. Well, that sounds good. Even better. Okay, how about your car? If you want the best service for your vehicle, please talk to James at Florida Stores Automotive, conveniently located at 6715 Caroline Street in the historic district of Milton, Florida, right between the Milton Bakery and the Blackwater Trail. Whether you need an oil change or an entire engine replaced, this is the place. The phone number is 850-623-6651. That's 850-623-6651. Call, ask questions, and get the information you need. Florida Stores Automotive is a full-service automotive shop for both domestic and imports, modern and classic. It is a family-owned business here in our Milton community. Open weekdays from 7.30 to 5 p.m., Florida Stars Automotive is a convenient place to keep your car maintained and on the road. Ask them about Firestone Tires and the rotation and maintenance plan. Florida Stars Automotive. I go there. You should, too. This is Greg Penglis for Strike Force, your source for pure energy. Strike Force is a concentrated energy drink that turns a half liter of your favorite beverage into an energy drink. You make your energy drink yourself. Action Radio is an affiliate of Strikeforce, so our listeners get a 20% discount. All you do is add our code, WYL, to the discount code window at checkout. WYL comes from our website, Write Your Laws. So, you can get your energy drink, a 20% discount, and help Action Radio change the relationship of we the people to our government. Not bad. Strikeforce is at StrikeforceEnergy.com. That's StrikeforceEnergy.com. Start your engines. This is Greg Penglis. So what is Action Radio? It is a radio show with its own citizen legislature. That's you, the listener. It is a fully interactive system of listeners, expert guests, social media, writing bills, legislator input, bill submission, lobbying, and citizen action. Action Radio is the future of talk radio using all the available technology in one completely integrated new system. You are listening to Action Radio Online with Greg Penglis. The webpage for all Action Radio shows and podcasts is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Please share our show with all your friends and family, both nationally and internationally. The guiding principle of Action Radio is this. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed. 
Joe Biden's Dark Winter. No freedom, no liberty, no guns, no representation, no oil, no coal, no nuclear power, no space force, no constitution, no family gatherings, no vacations, just taxes, work, misery, masks, lockdowns, and ever more government. This is what will happen if you let Marxists steal the election. This has been a public service announcement of Action Radio, reminding you it's time to get off your butt and save your country. Action Radio. Dangerously cool. You know, I actually made that uh, that Biden's dark winter piece uh, before the 2020 elections. That's been around for a while. And so now it applies again. I, I might have to modify it and say this is what happen, happens if you let Marxists steal the election again. <laughs> you know, so let me just add again to that. We're almost done. We only got about uh, 16 minutes left here on the clock. Uh, so, Marco, have a great day. Uh, I know you're listening out there somewhere, uh, somewhere in the, the Nether Netherlands. And so it'd be kind of cool to uh, – I want to meet him one day. Excuse me. I want to meet all these folks that uh, are part of this. So one more article in my, my great, vast storehouse of articles for occasions like this. This is the first show I, I haven't talked to anybody. I mean, yeah, I had a break for 45 minutes while I was interviewed. I played an old interview, but uh, I literally have not talked to anybody else. It's, it's, it's all been me. That's a weird experience. I know you're out there. I know you're listening, but it's just, uh, it's just kind of strange to do that. All right. Brown Sun Institute, one of my favorite places, run by Jeffrey Tucker. Uh, he has uh, it's an article by Debbie Lerman. L-E-R-M-A-N, November 3rd, 2022. So this is last year, but it's still pretty accurate. And the article is titled, Government's National Security Arm Took Charge During the COVID Response. So you think the, uh, the CDC and the FDA were in charge? No. The NSC was in charge. This is a new revelation. Even though this article, article came out last year, I missed it. So let me see, let's go through this and, and see what, uh, what uh, Debbie says. She says, in previous articles, I discussed the probability that Deborah Burks the White House Coronavirus Task Force coordinator was not a representative of the representative of the public health agencies, but rather was appointed by the National Security Council. See, these are the folks that it just came out uh, Obama's, you know, secret team, the ones that were spying on Trump, the ones that do most of the damage, you know, the, the real deep state, the deep, deep state National Security Council, not accountable to anybody. Uh, certainly not to to Brandon. He has no idea what's going on. But this is Obama's, like, uh, I hesitate to say Gestapo because they're not that bad. But they're they're a secret intelligence group. They don't uh, you know throw people in concentration camps and kill them. But uh, they are very dangerous because they are the ones that are censoring and arresting and and uh, you know cutting off all kinds of stuff and uh, spying and and doing all these illegal things. Um, but uh, especially when it came to COVID, pretty much everything that was done under COVID was illegal. All right. Again, if they'd done nothing, it would have been over in six months because the, the regular doctors would have taken over and prescribed ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, and it would have been done. You could cure COVID for about 20 bucks worth of hydroxychloroquine, zinc, vitamin D3, vitamin C. Uh, that's it. Or ivermectin, same thing. But this is interesting. Deborah Burks was appointed by the National Security Council. She says, I now have proof that this was indeed the case. I have also uncovered documents that show, first bullet point, as of March 13th, 2020, that's two days before 15 days to solo spread, which I learned recently was a Mike Pence, you know, doctrine. You know, so that's Mike Pence sucks. He's part of the deep state uh, lockdown. 
Since as of March 13, 2020, the National Security Council was officially in charge of the U.S. government's COVID policy. Well, how did that happen? That's got to be Obama's playbook that he gave to Dr. Fascist, and Dr. Fascist probably implemented that without telling Trump. I'm sure this was done behind the scenes. Next bullet point, starting in, on March 18th of 2020, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, you know the folks that brought you that test yesterday? Everybody was all panicked about? Anyway, FEMA, under the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, was officially in charge of the U.S. government's COVID response. Why would FEMA be in charge? People, people think that FEMA has these uh, you know, concentration camp gulags just waiting for conservatives, right? And they may do it. I don't know. I don't think so. But you never know. Stranger things have happened. So, so it wasn't the health people in charge of this. It was, uh, it was our internal security apparatus was in charge of us, our own secret police, our Gestapo, our Savak, our uh, – uh, what are some of the other um, great uh, KGB? <laughs> you know, so so the, the, the internal ministry of security, those are the folks that were in charge of COVID policy. Why didn't Trump know that? And if he did, why didn't he do something about it? If he didn't know, why didn't he know? These are things we need to know. Article says the COVID task force coordinator was brought in by the NSC, the National Security Council. On March 11th of 2020, at a Heritage Foundation talk, Trump's National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, someone I know nothing about, uh, when discussing what the White House and the NSC were doing about the virus, said, we brought into the White House Debbie Burks, B-I-R-X, a fantastic physician and ambassador from the State Department. Really? <laughs> the diplomatic folks? Yeah, all right. She says, we appreciate Secretary Pompeo immediately moving her over to the White House at our, well, at the president's request. No, it was their request. Trump had no clue what was going on. And he didn't, I think in some ways he didn't want to know. I think he wanted to, uh, he, he deferred to experts. Well, you're the experts. You should take care of this. Never let a government expert run anything because they will take power and, and ruin your life. So the title expert confers to me danger. That's a warning. Someone calls himself an expert, especially a government expert. Oh, I'm really on my guard because experts have killed millions of people. You know, I used to have a liberal caller. Well, you're not an expert. You don't have a, a medical degree. Well, isn't that interesting? Let's see what your experts are doing. They killed a million people. They extended COVID, something that would have been gone in a few months. Uh, they declared cures to be illegal. They declared vaccines to be cures when they weren't. They did everything wrong. So your so-called experts are murderers. Okay, I'll, I'll take my own experts. Thank you very much. My, my private experts are a lot better than your public government experts. In fact, they're not even experts. They're dangerous. All right. So this is, we appreciate Secretary Pompeo. Now, he's another deep state operative, Pompeo, right? He was another anti-Trumper who, who snuck into the Trump administration. So you got Mike Pence was a traitor. Uh, Mike Pompeo was a traitor. Maybe you just don't have people with the name Mike. <laughs> well, except Michael Flynn. That'd be different. All right. As is immediately moving her over to the White House at our, and then he says, well, at the president's request. But he said at our request. So in other words, the, the NSC, the National Security Council, wanted to take one of their operatives, Debbie Burks, and move her from, from the State Department over to the White House uh, COVID response team. Then it says the National Security Council was in charge of our COVID policy. An astonishing, astonishing government document dated March 13, 2020, again, two days before 15 days to slow the spread, and, two, and almost two weeks after we said the whole COVID government response is a hoax. We've got cures. We don't need vaccines. That's what we said. Guess what happened to us? We were censored immediately. Then it says uh, the title of this government document, PANCAP, that's P-A-N-C-A-P, Adapted U.S. Government COVID-19 Response Plan, PANCAP-8, embedded at the end of this piece, reveals that the United States policy in response to SARS-CoV-2 
was set not by the public health agencies designated in pandemic preparedness protocols, in other words, Obama's pandemic playbook, right? Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act, PBD-44, BIA, whatever that means, but rather by the National Security Council or the NSC. So the same people that spied on Trump coordinated the government response on COVID so they could steal the election. I I said that. Okay, it's not in the article. I just said that. That it seems to me that the same people that spied on Trump, the National Security Council, under Obama, were still working for Obama, even though Trump was in the White House, spied on Trump throughout his administration and coordinated the COVID response plan so they could steal the election with mandates, lockdowns, masks, you know, COVID shots, mail-in ballots, drop boxes, <laughs> you know, and everything else that happened. It's all, it's all one operation, okay? So you really can't separate the COVID operation and the stealing of the election because they're, they're two parts of the same plan, right? Then it says, this is the pandemic response organization chart from page nine of PANCAP A uh, showing the NSC, so, uh, showing the NSC solely responsible for COVID policies. Let me blow that up and see if I can see what that is. Um, let's go back to actual size. I had to shrink the article down because the, 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 uh, the print was too big. Here we go. White House Task Force. So the White House Coronavirus Task Force on the left, you have the National Security Council. Uh, on one side, then you've got ESFLG. Don't know who they are. That's FEMA, some of those other folks. Then you've got the CDC. Then you've got uh, HHS, all these different departments. And then it says, here, now, okay, now I'm going to shrink this down again so I can read it. Here we go. Eight minutes left. I can do it. <laughs> then it says, what is the National Security Council? Okay, now we're going to get to the good stuff. According to its website, the NSC is the president's principal forum for considering national security and foreign policy matters with his or her senior advisors and cabinet officials. In other words, this is cabinet within the cabinet. This is the inner circle. This is the ultimate inner circle. That's who these people are, right? Susan Rice, you know, Valerie Jarrett, <laughs> you know, the Obama operatives that were still there in the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence. Those were Obama's operatives in the Trump administration. Dr. Fascist. You guys know how I mean by Dr. Fascist, right? Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fascist, the genocidal, psychopathic, avaricious, narcissistic, pathologically lying vaccine drug pusher. That's his full title. I'm going to tell that to uh, Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf's going to be on Tuesday. She's going to love that. Naomi. I should tell her, too, about the, the pandemic guidelines. Okay, so this is something I discovered that no one else has written about or talked about. Pandemic guidelines. Hang on, just make a little note to myself here. 2000 and what was it 22? So two. I think it's, isn't it 2007? Hang on, I'm gonna check it out here. Let me do this real quick. I know they had the guidelines in 2017. Oh, 2007. So 2007 guidelines under under W. Bush uh, versus the 2017 guidelines uh, where they changed everything. So 10 years later, they changed everything. So the original pandemic guidelines had a pandemic severity index and a bunch of other things. The 2017 guidelines had no restrictions at all. You could go to full lockdown immediately, but the 2007 guidelines had all kinds of restrictions. They had categories before you could go to lockdown. Let's tell Naomi Wolf about that. I think she'll find that fascinating. All right. It should be Tuesday. So what is the National Security Council? All right. President's principal forum. It's the inner circle. Then the article says the NSC does not include as regular attendees any representatives from public health-related agencies. The NSC does not include as regular attendees any representatives from public health-related agencies. So Dr. Fascist, Dr. Redfield, uh, all the other doctors 
So, so how come Susan Burke's got to do it? Debbie Burke's got to do it. Well, I don't know. Let's find out. Article says it does not include the president's national security advisor, who is the president's most important source of policy advice on foreign and national security policy. So why would the national security advisor not be on the National Security Council? That seems irrational to me. Unless you want to exclude that person because you don't want him involved in what, your, what Obama's you know, cabinet within the Trump administration is doing. So that's interesting. So the National Security Advisor should run the National Security Council, one would think. Then it says, uh, it says, according to the White House Transition Project's document for the National Security Advisor and staff, in some administrations, the document continues, foreign and national security policy making is essentially centralized in the hands of the NSC advisor with minimal input from the cabinet-level departments, such as state or defense. <clears throat> so the National Security Advisor basically runs the foreign policy. That in itself is scary. He's not an um, elected person. They're not part of the cabinet. I don't even think they're approved by Congress. Good. Isn't that interesting? I should find out. The NSC advisor with minimal input from the cabinet-level departments. The cabinet is supposed to be the, 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 the real inner circle. Secretary of Defense. Furthermore, there is little statutory or legal constraint beyond budgetary limits in how the role of the NSC advisor is defined or how the NSC staff is organized and operates. So in other words, they're a completely independent spy branch of the executive branch. In the case of Trump, the previous executive, <laughs> Obama. Then it says, in other words, if the NSC, the National Security Council, is in charge of COVID response, it can pretty much decide and impose anything it wants without any constraints or oversight as long as the president agrees or at least lets them take the lead. See, that was the problem. Trump, I don't know if he agreed or not, he'd let them do it. So it's just as bad to exercise power you don't have as it is to let others exercise power that they don't have. And that's what he did. He let others exercise power. Article says, but what exactly is PAN-CAP-A in which the NSC appears in such surprising COVID response leadership role? So we never heard this, right? You never heard that the National Security Council was running the COVID response. Well, all we heard was CDC, FDA, those kind of folks, NIH. We never heard NSC. You guys keeping track of all these letters? It gets a little confusing. Then it says PAN-CAP-A is the closest we have to a national COVID response plan. PAN-CAP-A stands for Pandemic Crisis Action Plan Adapted. She said adopted, I guess, but I don't know. I don't write these things. An exhaustive online search did not turn up pandemic crisis action plan from 2018, which was apparently adapted to produce PANCAP A. Why would you have a pandemic crisis action plan two years before COVID? <laughs> Just a little detail, right? Unless they already had a plan, which of course we all knew. That was a rhetorical question which is apparently adapted to produce PAN-CAP-A. However, the existence of the original document is confirmed in various documents, including a statement on preparedness for COVID-19 presented to the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs on April 14, 2021. Oh, so a year after they've mandated things they had no right to mandate, and a long time after the 2017 pandemic guidelines had completely changed and adapted to a Trump administration two years before COVID actually hit. So, they, so isn't that convenient? They changed the guidelines two years before COVID so they could lock down immediately? Ha! What a coincidence. Back to the article. In, the state, in this statement, Elizabeth Zimmerman, former FEMA administrator. Oh, there's FEMA again. Oh, it's my 90-second warning. I'll go a little bit over. I'm almost done. So FEMA, the people that brought you the, uh, uh, the, the devastation in Maui where the sirens were not used in an emergency but were probably blasted yesterday, <laughs> okay. even though I don't think anybody heard them, um, the, the FEMA people, the emergency people, 
Um, there they are, a former FEMA administrator, Elizabeth Zimmerman, who is sharing with the Senate committee her findings on the initial pandemic response and lessons learned, says she had trouble finding the government's plan for the U.S. response to COVID-19. Well, we all knew what the government's response to COVID-19 was. Downs, mass mandates, social distancing, closing schools, closing companies the government didn't get contributions from, you know, you know, creating fear, closing churches, violating the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment due process, seizing your, your, your person. I mean, that's, that's what the COVID response, we don't know what the COVID response was, and none of it was legal. Did it anyway. And the only reason they got away with it is because all you idiots out there complied. Not everybody in the country, but the, the third of the country that complied Everything's divided in thirds. A third complied, a third resisted, and a third in the middle was, you know, watching football. All right. Let's see what uh, Elizabeth Zimmerman said. In researching disaster response plans to refresh my memory for this hearing, I found several detailed plans that were publicly available and saw mention of plans and directives. Oh, 10 seconds left. Bye, Marco. Available and saw mention of plans and directives that were not publicly available. The time spent searching for these plans and directions was frustrating for an experienced emergency manager. So the emergency managers weren't able to manage the emergency because they didn't know what the plan was. The people who did have the plan weren't emergency managers of COVID or health problems because they were national security people, which handles foreign policy, spies, wars, things like that. Terrorism, that kind of stuff. Now, the question is, were they implementing terrorism or preventing us from it? (laughs) You know the answer. Then the article says, then in reference to the plan she, may, she was able to find or knew about, uh, but may not have actually seen, she says, following the anthrax attacks in 2001, see, that was the basis of COVID. So they, they practiced on anthrax, right? Following the anthrax, anthrax attacks in 2001, the federal government invested a lot of money on processes and plans centered on public health response, bioterrorism and pandemics in particular. One of the latest plans, January 2017, is the Biological Incident Index, BIA, to the Response and Recovery Federal Interagency Operational Plans, the FIOPS. <laughs> Sorry, I get lots of this stuff. Let me say that again. The, the latest plans, January 2017, which is three months before April 17, when they changed all the, all the pandemic guidelines, right? January 2017, when uh, Trump was, uh, not, was uh, inaugurated. Hmm, what a coincidence. You know, he's inaugurated on the 20th, and the week before that, Dr. Fascia said, oh, I think Trump's going to have a pandemic during his administration. Really? Thanks for the warning. I mean, that's, that's when I knew it was all planned out. All right. So January 2017 is the Biological Incident Annex, the BIA, to the Response and Recovery Federal, in- the Response and Recovery Federal Interagency Operational Plans, the FIOP. The BIA is the federal organizing framework for responding and recovering from a range of biological threats, including pandemics. Well, they started the anthrax in 2001. Anthrax is uh, uh, that was spread by uh, white powder. So that was a terrorist attack. That wasn't necessarily a pandemic because anthrax is, is a disease the cattle get. And I think sheep too. It's a farm animal disease. I think humans can get it, but uh, the, the, whole, the whole panic of anthrax was that it was being spread by terrorism, not by natural uh, causes, unless you happen to be on a farm where there was anthrax, in which case the animals get quarantined and killed and... Uh, so you don't, you don't spread it, all right? I'm not sure how anthrax works exactly, but it's interesting that two, the anthrax attacks were in 2001. The new pandemic guidelines, which called for categories and an, a pandemic, uh, what was it, the pandemic uh, response, so pandemic severity index, right? So the pandemic severity index said you don't have full lockdowns until over 2 million people have died. Well, we only had 1 million, pe- 1 million people killed, so we would never get to lockdowns in COVID if they followed the 2007 guidelines. But they didn't. They wrote new guidelines in 2017 
three months after Trump takes office because they don't want to bring it. They know they want to bring in a pandemic early and use it to steal the election later. And so they created pandemic guidelines that had no guidelines on when you could do a lockdown. You could do a lockdown before anybody had died if they wanted. That was the whole point of the new of the new guidelines. Right. Lockdown, steal the election. Same plan. Right. Back to the article. It says, however, it was not publicly seen that these plans were being used during the onset of COVID-19, nor does it seem that there was a national COVID response plan. There was in 2007, the pandemic severity interim guidelines. They already had a plan, but they didn't see 2007, the 2007 plan, the one I found by accident gets lost. They never mention it because it had a pandemic severity index, because it had different categories, it had five different categories of severity, and each increase in, in the category caused for an increase in response. It was graduated. It was proportional. And so they never used it. They didn't want a gradual or proportional response. They wanted full lockdowns immediately. Well, the only way they could do that was to change the guidelines. So they changed the guidelines three months after it takes office. Gee, what a coincidence. Last part of the article. Finally, she references the 2018 PANCAP, the adapted PANCAP, uh, and then makes another surprising statement. Also, there was a 2018 Pandemic Crisis Action Plan, PANCAP, that was customized for COVID-19, of course, specifically and adopted in March 2020 by HHS and FEMA. The plan, FEMA, Federal Emergency Response Folks, the folks that don't do public health, right? They do natural disasters and maybe terrorist attacks. Hmm. The plan identified the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, as the lead federal agency, LFA, with FEMA supporting for coordination. However, a mere five days after the national COVID-19 emergency response was, emergency was announced, FEMA became the LFA. Oh, five days after the national COVID-19 emergency was announced. It wasn't declared, it was announced. Isn't it interesting to say announced and not declared? Because they didn't, they, they put it in the federal register. They, they, they announced it. Well, we're declaring, we're, we're in a state of emergency. FEMA became the, the lead federal agency. FEMA, not the CDC, not the FDA, not Health and Human Services. So, so, so FEMA, which is in the Department of Homeland Security, right? Just make sure of that. Yeah, pretty sure it is. Um, the other one such the lead. So this was never in the public health realm. Never. And it says FEMA replaced, how much more of this do I have? Yeah. Actually, a lot more. <laughs> I'll, I'll, probably, I'll probably end up here because I don't want to uh, get too much further into this great article. FEMA replaced HHS as the lead federal agency with no warning or preparation. What Zimmerman is saying here is that in the PAN-CAP-A organizational chart, where the NSC, National Security Council, is in charge of policy and the HHS is in charge of almost everything else, actually FEMA is in charge of everything else. So this is never this is never a public health uh, thing, even though it's a public supposedly pandemics for public health, right? Then it says this means that in effect, starting on March 18th, 2020, three days into 15 days to slow the spread, right? The HHS, the Health and Human Services Department, which comprises the CDC, the NIAID that Dr. Fascist led, the NIH, and other public health-related agencies, had no official leadership role in pandemic response, not in determining policy and not in implementing policy. Then it says, this is a staggering piece of information considering that all pandemic preparedness plans, as Zimmerman notes, place Health and Human Services Agency, HHS, at the helm of the pandemic response. We're going to hold it there. I'm going to pick this up. <laughs> There's a part two to this one. This is great. All right, everything's shut down. It's time for me to go. 
<laughs> and I played everything I want to play except for our, our ending music for Thursday. But uh, I played everything I could possibly play. This is pretty cool. This has been an interesting day. Actually, uh, you know, went into overtime by myself. So it's, uh, I've had enough talking. Time for me to uh, do other things. Get ready for tomorrow's show. Tomorrow's show is going to be fabulous. Um, we've got, uh, what have we got tomorrow? Uh, somebody I don't know that well, so I'm going to have to look him up. Andy Ross. We're going to talk to Andy Ross tomorrow. Talk to Naomi Wolf on Tuesday. Let me find my music for, for closing, and I will see you all tomorrow morning, Friday morning, 7 a.m. Central Time, where we will do it all again. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.